I think generally, people's thinking process is too bound by convention or analogy to prior experiences. It's rare that people try to think of something on a first principles basis. They'll say, we'll do that because it's always been done that way. Or they'll not do it because, well, nobody's ever done that, so it must not be good. But that's just a ridiculous way to think. You have to build up the reasoning from the ground up, from the first principles, is the phrase that's used in physics. You look at the fundamentals and construct your reasoning from that, and then you see if you have a conclusion that works or doesn't work, and it may or may not be different from what people have done in the past. Hey, Neil. How's it going? Hey, Nat. <laughs> Very excited to uh, be here on this episode of Made You Think. Yeah, this one's this one's going to be fun. Today, we're talking about um, the cook and the chef, which uh, for those of you that read Wait But Why, is going to sound very familiar. Um, it's about Elon Musk and more importantly, I think not really about like his life. It's partially about his life, but mostly about how he actually thinks. So if you haven't read the whole Wait But Why series on Elon Musk, there's a number of articles about his businesses. So there's a couple about Tesla, a couple about SpaceX. There's one about his early life and experiences. And then this is the last article in the series, which is about how Elon thinks and what might make him different from other people. And most importantly, how other people can emulate that form of thinking. Yep. And the thing that's really cool is it's a totally accessible way of thinking for anybody. Like, it's not like... I mean, of course, he's been blessed with, I think, some very good genes, probably from, you know, he's, he's very intelligent. He seemed to have pretty, you know, like not a, I wouldn't say a happy childhood, but he's well educated. So he kind of was got that opportunity. But the thing that seems to set him apart from most people, this idea of first print thinking from first principles is something that any of us can do. And, you know, it's a habit that's learned over time, but I think we can all kind of get better at it. Yeah. And it's such a useful heuristic, and it's it's baked into the title, The Cook and the Chef, Elon Musk's Secret Sauce, right? Which is this distinction between people who think from first principles and people who don't. And we're going to explore all of that throughout the episode. But yeah, I mean, I, like you said, it's a great heuristic for better thinking. It's really useful. And it's also a good practice, I find, of challenging your existing beliefs. And I'm sure we'll get to all that throughout the episode. But before we dig in, I should let everybody know that, as always, you can find show notes and more at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. And we'll also, we're starting a new thing this week where you can get all of our notes that we're using to prepare for the episodes. Which is even more thorough than the show notes. Exactly, because <laughs> we can't get to everything. Yeah. So if you're, if you're curious to see that, you can get that. And also, if you join the mailing list for the show, we'll let you know about upcoming episodes in case you want to read things in advance or follow along with us. And we're going to be doing some giveaways too, like free books, things like that related to the show. So you can get all of that at madeyouthinkpodcast.com, as well as, of course, the show notes for these episodes with everything that we reference, including all of the tangents. <laughs> yeah, that's... We- so that's what everybody loves about this show. <laughs> we haven't gotten to getting the sound effect yet, but I know that'll, that'll happen on a future episode at some point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll buy like Jim Cramer's like old soundboard. And <laughs> that should be our first Patreon goal, yeah. right? It's so, like if we get to a thousand dollars a month, we'll get a, a yeah. sound effects board for the tangents. <laughs> for now, we just have to do them with our mouths because yeah. we're bootstrapping this. Exactly. <laughs> Tangent one. <laughs> Anyway, back to Elon Musk, back to Elon. Uh, the way the article starts out is, uh, I thought, a great way to frame it, where the author's name is Tim Urban. The site is Wait But Why, uh, but where Tim is outlining this distinction between the ideal of a scientist and the flood geologist, yeah. where he explains that, you know, there's obviously and there still are 
people who call themselves scientists, but who believe that, well, the earth was formed 6,000 years ago by God, because that's what it says in the Bible, and therefore geology needs to conform to that idea. Right, because to them, they start, their first principle is that the earth was formed 6,000 years ago. Exactly. And there's no, like, you can't, <laughs> you can't change that. That's their first principle. Right, that, that's fixed in stone. And so now we have to build all of our intuitions off of that. And that obviously creates problems, right? right? Maybe this is my own judgment but for me it's easy to laugh at something like that but then if you really think about it there's probably things in our lives too in business and in life that we're probably basing things off of that are just as ridiculous well and that's sort of what he's getting at in the beginning here yeah. where he says that you know he's using the flood geologists because to us and probably to most of people listening that idea seems ridiculous right if you hold ardently to the belief that earth was formed 6000 years ago and that the water burst out from the crust and created all of this you know all these mountains and valleys and then it sucked the animals in and that's what created all the fossils at the different layers and it was a perfect sphere before that and noah had to like deal with all this shit for a week right it's like to us that seems kind of silly that somebody actually believes that physically happened but what Tim is pointing out is that we all have things like that in our life that we just accept as a first principle while having no scientific or reasoned basis for believing that thing. And that's kind of scary. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it's, it, that's, I mean, that's one of the best things this article does is it makes you think about, ah, that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was unintentional. That wasn't even so intentional. Yeah. You should have uh, seen the look on that space <laughs> when he just realized that he said that. <laughs> well, but it makes you think about like, where am I being a flood geologist? Exactly. No, it's such a good point. And I mean, I think like my mind first went to business for this, mm. where uh, yeah, I've, I spend a lot of time looking at like retail and my previous job. And then what I'm working on now is like kind of the evolution of retail. And there's a lot of things in retail, but I'm sure in other industries too, but mostly in retail from what I know, there's a lot of things that are just assumed. Like, you know, I know in like the beauty industry, for example, there's an assumption that if you challenge it in a big company, and maybe it's because it's in a big company or maybe just because it's been around for so long that people need to try on makeup, right? Before they yeah. they buy it. But there's a lot of startups that are challenging that. They're like trying to come up with new ways around sampling or new ways to show you what a product would look like digitally or, you know, through like augmented reality or virtual reality. So there's like, they're trying to challenge this idea that it needs to be done physically in person. You know, I guess first principle that they're basing it off of is a woman needs to know what it looks like on her before she buys it. Right. That's a very different thing than the person needs to physically go into a store to try it on. So they're taking it one notch back. Like, why is that person physically going into the store? They want to try it they on. They want to see what it looks like. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean. That's probably why like Smashbox and those did well, right? Because they sent out those small free samples. Small sample. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Smashbox even just launched a uh, like a 3D printer to do super small batch sizes of different shades so that you don't have to keep. They have 120 different shades. They don't want to keep inventory of 120 yeah, different obviously. shades. So somebody can just order it and, you know, behind the scenes, it'll be printed. Printed on demand. On demand and shipped out to the person. So nice. it's really cool. But yeah, it's like taking it back to this first principles thing. That's like an example in business of thinking from first principles. But most companies definitely don't do that. So yeah, most companies are just like, well, people have always done it this way. So that's how we have to do it. Yeah. The example I've always really liked for this too is uh, I, I took a philosophy of science class in college. And we talked a lot about the Copernican revolution and realizing that the earth revolved around the sun, not that the sun revolved around the earth. And one of the really funny things about astronomy before that was that if you look at Mars or any other planet moving through the sky over time, it actually appears to go backwards for a period. So it will 
go, you know, one direction and then it'll actually go back and then it'll go forward again. And that's a consequence of us moving at different orbital speeds. Oh yeah, right? that makes sense. Because yeah. we eventually sort of pass it and then it seems to go back and then it seems like it's moving again. Yeah, that, that makes a little more sense if you look at like a uh, an animation of it yeah. going. But I'm sure there's one on YouTube. Yeah, we, we, can we can find one and link to it. Happily link to it. In the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so before we realized that the Earth went around the sun, there were all of these really intricate elliptical patterns designed to explain why these planets doubled back on themselves. And so if you look at models of the pre-Copernican revolution orbits, they basically thought that the planets moved in these like double orbits where so they explained it via the super complicated. Yeah. The super complicated method. multiple orbit where Mars is going around the earth, but then it's also making like little circles in place, <laughs> oh kind of like a bicycle wheel. And so it's like orbiting around itself in this circle. And that's why it seems to go backwards sometimes. Right. Whereas obviously if they're all going around the sun, that just happens naturally. And that makes way more sense right. than this magical, uh, they called it retrograde motion, right? This mini like retrograde orbit. Yeah. And then, you know, you realize that, okay, we actually go around the sun and all these other weird things make sense fall away now yeah yeah isn't wasn't there something around relativity where there was like a constant that was like just thrown in yeah uh, well he threw it in Einstein threw it in because uh oh shoot what was it yeah I don't oh, know it was enough the about it. I think it was something to do with the ether yes right, right. Like, nobody could like well I guess it needed to be there to make the math work yeah but I'm talking out my ass why, right now. Yeah. I, I know I've read like an article about this at some point. Well, but. And I think the weird thing with that too was that he threw it in for some very arbitrary reason. And then he later realized like he really shouldn't have done that and took it out. But then later scientists figured out that it was actually necessary oh, and they okay. put it back in now. Okay. So, I, but we're definitely gonna have to lengthen that because yeah. it's way out of both of our intellectual yeah. depths. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so this is, uh, Tim is getting to in the first section, which is that in all of our lives, we have these areas where we're flood geologists. And even though we think that we're scientists, yep. right, to a certain degree, we're flood geologists. Yep. And what he's saying is Elon is a scientist through and through. I love the example of being scared of the dark. Yeah, the, this, <laughs> these examples of what he calls Musk speak are so funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so he's talking about when um, he said the first clue to the way Musk thinks is in the super odd way that he talks. For example, a normal human child would say, I'm scared of the dark because that's when all the scary shit is going to get me and I won't be able to see it coming. Elon, when I was a little kid, I was really scared of the dark. But then I came to understand dark just means the absence of photons in the visible wavelength, 400 to 700 nanometers. Then I thought, well, it's really silly to be afraid of a lack of photons. Then I wasn't afraid of the dark after that. <laughs> Or uh, Can you imagine explaining <laughs> to like a five year old, yeah. like, it's like, all right, Jimmy, worry, there's just no yeah. photons. <laughs> yeah, here, exactly. So. <laughs> I don't know. Whenever I read these two, it's like, I very much want to believe that's actually how he thinks. I know. But there's also a small part of my mind that goes, like, if I were Elon and I had all of this influence and power, I would just make shit like this up yeah. I like to, like, create this image. Too. Yeah, oh, the girlfriend one is so oh, funny. Can I read that one, too? Yeah, go ahead. Love that one. <laughs> Human single man. I'd like to find a girlfriend. I don't want to be so busy with work that I have no time for dating. Elon, I would like to allocate more time to dating, though. I need to find a girlfriend. That's why I need to carve out just a little more time. I think maybe even another five to ten... How much time does a woman want a week? Maybe 10 hours? That's kind of the minimum? I don't know. <laughs> it's a great pitch. That should be like a quote on someone's Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, How much time does a woman want? 
a minimum of 10 hours. Can, can you like put that on your profile for the yeah. next week? <laughs> we could do an experiment. How many yeah. more matches that report gets back was. next yeah. week? It's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of a perfect example of he just kind of thinking about these things differently or at least claiming to. And, you know, I, I love these examples because they're so funny. And I, I think it either it illuminates one of two things. Like one he really does legitimately think this way. I guess it could be three things. Two, I think he's probably like a little Aspergery, which would definitely make somebody think in this way, right? right? And it actually, I think it helps with first principle reasoning. Peter Thiel's made this argument that if you are a little bit on like the Asperger's autistic spectrum, you care much less about what other people think right. about what's right and wrong for, or like what's good and bad to do in these Social situations. Acceptable, Socially acceptable, acceptable yeah. yeah. And that actually is like a superpower for business. And I feel like you see that a little bit when he speaks too. Oh yeah. Right. I also think to a weird extent, he is one of the best salespeople of all time as well. So I think he does play some of this stuff up and he knows it, I'm sure. Because if you think about it, like, I mean, this might be getting too much into the business side of what he does, which is not the focus of this podcast, but like Tesla does not make money and has never really made money ever. They ship so few cars a year and they're always late on every single release, yet their valuation is incredibly high because of what people keep thinking is going to happen in the future. And I think Musk knows that like over time, electric vehicles are going to become the thing. And he just keeps buying his company time to, to be the company when that time rolls around. And it keeps getting closer and closer, I feel like. I mean, if you make that assumption that at some point in time, it will be the time every day that goes by is one day closer. But I think he's just like brilliant at that. I think Bezos was really good at that too. And now it's like Amazon has kind of turned because they they were like not profitable for almost the first like 10, 10, 15, 15 years. years Although with around. them, that was the goal. That was the goal. They never right. wanted to be profitable. Right. Yeah. Whereas Tesla is trying to sell as many cars as they can. They're yeah. not saying they're not trying. They move so fast. Yeah. But that, I mean, the, the being late is actually another perfect example of this kind of Musk speak and where maybe it can go wrong is that when he sets those deadlines, he basically like does the math of how long it should take oh, to do yeah. this stuff if everything goes absolutely perfectly. Right. Obviously which in a nothing, machine, it should go perfectly. Which in a machine, it should, right? <laughs> if, you, if you think of humans as perfect computers, right. then yeah, okay, that'll make sense. But obviously, it's not that simple, <laughs> right. right? I think Tesla's supposed there's to be like shipping. There's like government things, like there's yeah. for them. I mean, there's, yeah, there's government things, there's human issues, there's like labor things. Right. It's like something's going to get in the way. And so that's why you kind of have to... Like he's he's famous for horribly overestimating <laughs> right. how soon they'll be able to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. So like with the Mars stuff, right? You know, they want to send the first ship to Mars in 2022. And it's like, okay, it's a great goal. <laughs> it's probably gonna be 2024, maybe 2026. You just have to like in your head discount a right. little bit. Right. Uh, but at the same time, it gives a really great goal to right. the, it keeps their yeah like, rally around. And it probably gets everybody working at like double speed. Because if you're an employee of Tesla or SpaceX or any of his companies, you don't want to be the guy who disappoints the guy or girl who disappoints Elon Musk. That would suck. Well, and it's crazy that he can create such a big reality distortion field. Right. That's what I was right? just thinking. Yep. It's, like, it's That's the a reference thing from the, the uh, Steve Jobs yeah. uh, biography by Walter Isaacson. Well, Steve Jobs' whole life, right? right? Like yep. it was just the thing he was famous for is just changing what people thought was possible. But the scale Musk does it on is it almost like embarrasses the scale that yeah. Jobs was on, which is a ridiculous thing to say. Right. But it's like, okay, <laughs> you, like you're going to make an amazing phone, right? It's like you're going to take us to Mars, right? <laughs> it's crazy, right? But he's able to do that. Not just there, but then also in Tesla, like also with Solar City, there's also Hyperloop and Boring Company. Yeah. There's also Neuralink now. Right. It's just like an insane portfolio of yeah. places that he's applying this. I have uh, trouble doing my company in the podcast. <laughs> this guy's got like, <laughs> yeah. There are times where I'm like, 
man, this is taking up a lot of time. But that's like open AI. Yeah, I mean, this guy's doing like five, not just five companies. Like these are not just companies. Right. These are like world changing. Even if he just had one of them, it would be a world changing company. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I I would be so curious to hear how he divvies up the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, I know open AI is a one hour meeting a week. He's mentioned that somewhere. So that one's not too bad. I think Hyperloop's not that much time of his at least it wasn't well i think hyperloop he doesn't actually do anything okay. with that was just the white paper and then he let other companies run with it okay. boring company i don't exactly know how much he does with that either and i think they're like definitely tesla spacex yeah tesla spacex i heard is where he 40 hours each time. is that true because wow. I, I know there one's in la one's in san francisco yeah and he flies between them on like wednesday or something something like that yeah yeah, yeah i'd read something it's like 40 hours a week minimum each Jeez. uh yeah, I it's heard true. he like about, works all weekend. I heard too. something about Jack Dorsey doing the same for Square and Twitter. Yeah, where he does at least a full week for each of them. Just walks like across the street to each of them. Yeah, yeah. that's easier than the. It's a little bit space. easier. Well, like, yeah. although I guess Musk probably has his own plane, so it's not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> he can like, work on the plane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't have to go through TSA or anything like that. Probably, exactly. like, <laughs> but um, hey, once the BFR comes out, I'll be able to go from LA to SF in like 15 minutes. Right, that'll be yeah. even easier. Or for the tunnels, it, but, tunnels will be even better. But it's still, for 40 hours a week on each job is yeah, pretty it's damn impressive. Insane. Plus all these side projects, which he has time for. You know, I, <laughs> next I, thing you know, he's gonna start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we tried to get him on for this podcast and he was too busy i don't know, I don't know what better thing you could possibly have to yeah do, i mean seriously <laughs> well that's why i always think it's so funny when he uh does do little media things right it's like even small stuff like he has a cameo in iron man 2 right right and it's like it is amazing that he got the time to do that although he probably just does, does it like for the, fun i wonder if he does like the mental calculus though no okay this would be like maybe too much okay but if he does like the mental calculus of how many people will see this and how will that help advance the projects that i'm working on i don't know Possibly. maybe that's part of it well tesla does zero maybe that's why he didn't respond to us possibly because yeah, he knew we were gonna be talking about him anyway he didn't need to be here <laughs> Well, Tesla does zero advertising, right? Right. They don't do any advertising and they just like sell way more cars they can produce. They do go to a lot of conferences though. There's a lot of auto shows that they're at. But they have their stores and their videos. Yeah, but it's not the same as like you don't see their ads on like football games or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean kind of what we're getting at is this whole software versus hardware idea where part of it is literally just how Elon thinks, right? It's that he has this way of thinking about life and work that is so different. And I I like what Tim mentions here, which is that when people look at somebody like Elon and talk about him in these kind of adoring ways that we have been, it's tempting to focus on the hardware, right? Saying like, oh, he's just like such a smart guy, right? He's just like born gifted and intelligent. Well, it almost elevates him to a level of a god if you think about it that way, where it's like, okay, like he's sort of blessed with these things and us mortals can only yeah. <laughs> can only watch can only talk about him yeah. on our podcasts yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> but uh yeah but what tim is saying is uh and this is reading from him the more i learn about musk and other people who seem to have superhuman powers whether it be steve jobs albert einstein henry ford genghis khan mary curry john lennon ayn rand or louis ck the more i'm convinced that it's their software not their natural born intelligence or talents that makes them so rare and so effective and that's a really important distinction because if you do look at them as just being born gifted, then it's very demotivating. But for the most part, they're born like slightly ahead of the curve. But then a lot of it is just their thinking and the hard work that goes into it that gets them there. Which I think is like, um, so on one level, it is very encouraging. And I think for people who are motivated, it's very encouraging to see that. Yeah. That like, oh, it's their software, it's not their hardware, which means anybody can upgrade their own software. 
and their way of thinking. But it's also, I think, a reality that a lot of people don't want to see. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's weirdly both. If yeah. it is on your control, then it's like, why aren't you exactly? That good? Why aren't you that good? Right. And yeah. the reason is probably you haven't put in the work and you haven't put in the right work. You know, you haven't changed your thought processes to be in that fashion. And, and then, of course, there's other factors as well. But like a lot of us don't want to face the reality that, okay, it is probably us is the reason why we're not thinking at their level. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like that they're born. I mean, they are born with natural gifts. But you can't even say for like, I was going to say something that was like, you know, if you're born in America in this day and age, like you are hitting the lottery in some some sense, right? Like uh, you're not born in like Sudan or something like that would be a lot worse. But I was going to say that. But then at the same time, it's like Einstein was born in Germany right before the Holocaust. Yeah, like, that was not a not he wasn't born right before the Holocaust, but he lived in Germany right before the Holocaust. Like, that was not a happy place or time to be a Jewish person. No, I mean, we can probably go through a few of these, right? Even Steve so, Jobs was adopted, right? Yeah, like, Steve Jobs was adopted. Elon like, Musk didn't have an easy childhood either, if I remember that article. No, I mean, because yeah. he grew up in South Africa and basically got the shit beat out of him all the time. Yep. Uh, who else do we have here? Uh, Genghis Khan, like, basically kept getting, like, kicked out of... Yeah, I think the, his dad was murdered or something. And then yeah, his dad like, was killed. Exiled he got exiled for, like, a few years, and then he had to work his way back in, like, collecting different nomadic tribes yep. and putting them together. Uh, Ayn Rand obviously like grew up in Soviet Russia, right? Yeah. right? Like that was pretty brutal. Right. Um, Louis CK's life at least seems like a shit show from the outside. <laughs> or maybe that's just his sense of humor. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's obviously like an element of, you know, what IQ and hardware you're born with, right. but people definitely overestimate the its impact. Plays, it, yeah. It's it's predictive on like a broad societal scale, but on the individual scale, it's completely surmountable. Are you ever surprised when you meet successful people at like sometimes how normal their intelligence level is? Mm. Like, have, I've, especially yeah. like people like I've had, uh, I've been fortunate to meet some very, like very rich people in some of the uh, work that I've done. And it's always shot, especially like self, like some self-made rich people. You're like, this person probably has an IQ of a hundred, which is not like bad, but it's very average. Mm-hmm. It's like straight up average. And that person has made like hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like their software might be really good or it's really good for what they ended up working on. Right. Like they understand that that business really, really well. Or, I mean, it's also possible they got super lucky. Luck and like hard work too. Luck and hard work, exactly. Um, But it's very interesting. It's like not, it's way less about the hardware the more you look at things. Like hardware plays a role, but it's probably 25% at most. Yeah, exactly. And then just the right software like makes all the difference. I I mean, I heard this with Louis C.K. as one example, right? Where he's, you know, he's probably one of the most famous comedians right now. And a big thing for him was throwing out his jokes, Right. So one of these like limiting beliefs he had was that you had to like have one routine and keep improving it and improving it. And then eventually he said like, you know, I think he kind of digged in and realized that was like a crony belief. Right. It was one that was, you know, kind of like flood geologisty. And so he started throwing out his jokes at the end of each year. Oh, and that's awesome. Actually. It was only once he started doing that and forced himself to work way harder at coming up with new, better jokes that he started to really get 
noticed because there was something like 10, 15 years where he was just trying to refine a few acts and like nobody gave a shit. And he started just throwing out all of his jokes and making new ones and he like exploded. And that's why he releases a new special every year now because each year he has to come up with a new set of jokes and then he does the special and then has to come up with a new set, right? Wow. And that's like just 100% what he focuses on now. Like he's basically stopped doing TV and everything else. It's just... It's really interesting too when somebody like throws out the rules of their industry. Maybe not all the time there's a survivorship bias here possibly, but it does seem like that is a fairly effective means if you understand why you're doing it right too yeah i mean i'm sure that's a big caveat that's like the you, first you can't just throw them part. out exactly yeah, yeah you can't just throw it out <laughs> like, <laughs> like oh i'm a deviant right? i'm gonna make makeup that makes everybody look bad like <laughs> all the that's dinner plates are upside work. down yeah. right like yeah, that probably won't work probably won't help very much <laughs> <laughs> but if you understand like why like this whole refining jokes versus coming up with a new one every year like that actually sound like as a consumer of comedy I would say that actually is awesome if I'm a fan of Louis C.K. because it's like, I'm going to get all new jokes every year from him. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Why would I not like that? And he's going to have to go through a lot more cycles of testing and iteration and learning what works and what doesn't. Yep. Right? Yeah, it was like, um, a lot more. I mean, even in, uh, have you ever read Tropic of Cancer? No. By Henry Miller? Okay, it's just like a shocking book to read. Shocking in the sense that like it's truly fully unfiltered. It was banned for a long, long okay. time. Super sexually explicit. But basically he was a writer for like 15 years or something in New York completely went nowhere, had like almost no money left and was like, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to write something just about my experience that is not edited whatsoever. And there's like sentences that just trail off sometimes that he just like doesn't finish the sentence. He just goes to the next sentence and he's like, I don't give a shit anymore. He was so uh, fed up with like the publishing scene. Yeah. He's like, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write and whatever I'm feeling and whatever's happening. And then that's it. And the book, it got so popular partially because it got banned, I think. That was like a big part of it. But but it was a really interesting book. And there's no plot whatsoever. It's just his like life as like a semi-homeless person Damn. going to brothels and like, <laughs> <laughs> and like figuring out how to feed himself. It's just like super Tropic interesting. Tropic of cancer? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It has nothing to do with, I don't know where the name comes from. It has nothing to do with cancer. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but it's just super interesting. It's like he threw out the rules of writing, which is, you know, if you're going to write a book, it's got to have a plot. It's got to have characters. It's got to be like edited. It's got to be acceptable. So yeah. it can actually be sold. And like, he was like, nope, no rules. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And it turned into a bestseller. It worked. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, an, like a much less extreme version of that. <laughs> I don't know if we're doing this book next week or in a few weeks, but The Goal by oh, yeah. Eliyahu and yeah, Goldrock. Week, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like that's a business book, but it's written as a novel. Yep. And that's such a cool, interesting way of doing it. Yep. And it's one of the best-selling business books of all time. Right. right? And it's, it's really easy to pay attention to it too, because it's not written as like a normal business book. Exactly. It's, it's way less dry. dry. Yep. You've got the stories to latch the ideas onto. It's yep. like very helpful. But yeah, so what Tim gets into next is this whole like strategy for designing a reality and pursuing your goals. And this is a little hard to understand, like without the visuals. So we definitely recommend that everyone go to the show notes on made you think podcast.com and uh, get a link to the article. We'll link to the image in particular. And the article is free. Like it's on uh, Tim Urban's website. Wait, but why you don't need to buy anything. And it's worth reading. It's It's, it's like a 25, 30,000 word article. So it'll take you a bit, but it's definitely worth reading. But what he talks about here is that just the way Musk thinks about what he wants to go after is so different. So there's a few main areas here, right? There's everything that you want in your life. And then there's the reality of your situation, right? And where those overlap gives you your goals. Because you might want like a lot of things that are just completely unaccessible based on your current reality. So they shouldn't go in your goals. Then whatever goal, your whole goal pool, you pick 
one or a few things out of that. And then from that goal that you selected, you can form a strategy. And then you take that strategy and you take action on that strategy. You get results, feedback, new information that lets you adjust the strategy and you kind of keep going, right? And then if at some point you realize that what you want has changed because you have personally evolved, if your reality changes because you get more money, more education, the world changes, technology changes, right? Those things update your goal pool, which again, updates your strategy, which changes what you're doing. It's a whole bunch of feedback experience. loops. Yeah, it's basically. all these feedback loops to keep changing or it's to keep- It's a really good diagram. Yeah, it's too. super I helpful. really, really recommend you look at it. Like it makes your, like it just makes you realize like we all do this anyway. Like I think we're all doing this already, but just understanding what all these variables are that are playing into it is- mm just fascinating as just even a, a visual for it. Well, and using it as a conscious model yes, too, I think exactly. is effective because I think you're right that we all do it on some level. But we're we not consciously doing it. We're not consciously doing it. And the big element here is the updates, right? So yeah, we oftentimes just keep chasing the same goal because exactly. that was our goal six months ago. And we're going to, we don't give up. Nope. Yeah, we don't give up. No quitting. <laughs> right. And those goals could have come from, you know, bad places, right? right. Could be like flood geologist goals as opposed yep. to things that you actually want. Yeah. Right. Totally. So what he's talking about here is that uh, Musk really, at least from the outside, it appears that, oh, and we should also mention that Tim was interviewing Elon to write these articles. Right. He wasn't just observing it from the outside. They were actually sitting down talking about all this stuff. And that's how he wrote it. Now, what he's saying is that Musk's software is so effective is because he uses it like a scientist, right? He's actually being very scientific where he's creating and testing hypotheses and using those to like fill in what he actually wants, fill in the actual reality, select the best goals and build a strategy based off of it. So there's a couple of parts of that where, you know, on the one hand, he is building every like software, quote unquote, component himself from the ground up. So instead of just like absorbing somebody else's wants, what somebody else thinks the reality is, he's actually like going to the source and figuring it out. Right. Trying to understand what are the constraints. Like I remember reading about, uh, I think this is might also come from a Wait But Why article, mm -hmm. but the history of SpaceX. Yeah. And how he sort of came up with it was he did a back of the envelope calculation. Yeah, we've got it here, actually. Yep. Uh, historically, all rockets have been expensive. So therefore, in the future, all rockets will be expensive. But actually, that's not true. If you say, what is a rocket made of? It's made of aluminum, titanium, copper, carbon fiber. And you can break it down and say, what is the raw material cost of all these components? And if you have them stacked on the floor and could wave a magic wand so that the cost of rearranging the atoms was zero, then what would the cost of the rocket be? And I was like, wow, okay, it's really small. It's like 2% of what a rocket costs. Right. So clearly- It's like orders of magnitude. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so clearly it would be in how the atoms are arranged. So you've got to figure out how can we get the atoms in the right shape much more efficiently. And so I had a series of meetings on Saturdays with people, some of whom were still working at the big aerospace companies, just to try to figure out if there's some catch here that I'm not appreciating. And I couldn't figure it out. There doesn't seem to be any catch. So I started SpaceX. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, right? It's just you do the math and it's like, huh, this doesn't add up. There's like a 98% arbitrage here. So Yeah, that's a big arbitrage. Let's start yeah. a company. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny that like um it's not funny, but it's interesting that I would say a lot of companies are started that way. Where mm -hmm. it's like it's kind of like that question of like why can't it be done better? And you start yeah. digging into how it's done today, and then you compare it to how do you think it could be done? And then you see if there's any like glaring thing that you're missing. Like, obviously I didn't do this for the rocket market, which is a lot more complicated, but for beer, I did something very, very similar when I was thinking about starting unlimited, yeah. which is just like looking at, okay, like if I wanted to go start my own small beer brand, what would it cost me? 
what should it cost me and what doesn't cost me because i know like the components that go into it and then what it would actually cost me in reality there's just a gigantic delta between that and you look into why and it's like okay partially government regulation partially it's just that's the way things have always been done yeah and then then part of it's just like you have to work with all these different entities so i'm like okay how do you make it so that you can have a platform on top of which other people can build their own brands off of so you only have to do that cost once right and then it's sort of amortized over every other brand that's built on top of that but it has to be based on that first principles thing and honestly i wouldn't have known a lot of those things Mm -hmm. without making beer myself because i wouldn't know any of the components that go into it i wouldn't have known that the ingredients essentially are compared to the final cost are virtually zero of the beer and it's all packaging is where a lot of the cost is packaging and shipping distribution yeah Yeah. so it's like if you can control those things then you might actually be able to do things that are custom in super small batches at the exact same price Mm. that you can do large runs at makes sense Uh, it's a lot of clothing companies have done the same thing right where they figured out how to get the cost of production way lower and then just have really good logistics so they can do these smaller quicker batches like zara yep right where they're turning stuff around in a month yep crazy yep and then it lets them basically fundamentally redefine what a clothing brand is because it's not like zara is really interesting where they don't have like designers coming up with like the spring collection or like the fall collection or whatever they have like thousands of designs going out at once then they're using like the sales data to determine what to scale up right right fascinating way to run a clothing very scientific but it's totally different than like prada it's like the exact opposite (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then the other cool thing is like how they do their marketing have you ever read about that? No. So they basically spend all their budget on uh, like their marketing and advertising budget is not really spent on marketing and advertising. Okay. It's spent on getting store space that's right next to like all the stores that they compete with. So any like high end clothing store, right. like a Gucci or Prada or anything like that, and they pay for the space and then they just piggyback off the foot traffic that those uh, brands are going to get. <laughs> <laughs> they probably like advertise stuff in the window that's yeah, exactly. similar, but you know, a tenth of the price. Right, exactly. Yeah. And they figure a lot of people are just going to go to those stores. Like of all the people who like, have you ever gone to a Gucci store? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever bought anything from Gucci? Nope. Same here. Exactly. <laughs> so that's, that's their betting on, right? It makes people sense. Like us. We'll just go in, window shop a little bit and right. then go to Zara to actually right. buy exactly. something. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> I love that. I'm glad you said no because if you had said yes, I'd have been like, it would have oh, ruined your I feel example. Like, yeah. like now I feel really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you want to put your podcast host in some nice Gucci slippers, yeah, we, we can sure put our to, addresses. Uh, not go to MadeYouThinkPodcast.com <laughs> and click on all the Amazon things. <laughs> <laughs> and then go buy like a car on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, then we need like 10 people to buy Gucci shoes on Amazon. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen from them buying books. No. We really need to start advertising like camera equipment or something. <laughs> Those guys make a lot of money. I wonder if we can become like Tesla affiliates from this episode. <laughs> if someone goes and buys a Tesla, <laughs> get 4% of the purchase price. Hey, that would add pretty up pretty good. fast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, the second part of how Elon uses this thinking system is continually adjusting like each part of his software as new conclusions and new information comes in. So, and this is really just the scientific method, right? Given that it seems that A equals B and given it seems that B equals C plus D, then therefore it seems like A equals C plus D. But he's basically constantly trying to update this stuff where he simply just tests everything, right? Continually testing his ideas, adjusting them regularly, running experiments, you know, trying to draw conclusions from them, and then constantly trying to go back and update the want box, update the reality box, select the best goal from the goal pool, and then building a strategy around it. I know you do this, and I 
try my best to do this as well. But have you ever tried explaining this to someone who just does not do it? Like where you're like, when they ask you like, who's your target customer? And you're like, well, like I'm exploring like these few different types of customers and like, we'll see which one it resonates with more. Mm. Like some people who don't come from this type of mentality would be like, oh, that's a very wishy-washy answer. Like I couldn't see someone on Shark Tank answering yeah. that, right? Like they would get crushed. Yeah. But it seems to be the best way to operate. At least I think opinion. it's the most honest way. Right? Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, it's like, we'll adjust as new data comes in, but this is what we, this is our hypothesis. Right. And this is what the data so far seems to be showing, but we're not married to it. Like, yeah. If there's a better way to do it, we'll do that. Back in the Pittsburgh startup days, <laughs> the people like very unskilled investors always wanted like five year sales projections. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. And that was always just the most absurd things. It's like, these are literally made up numbers, right? And you can, you can create ranges based on a whole bunch of assumptions, but, but you have so, to, such assumptions. Exactly. Like, <laughs> and you could, you know, way overshoot it, right? Obviously you could just like crash and burn. The right? only thing you know is those numbers are not right. Yeah, exactly. That's like the only information it gives you is like, it'll be anything but this number. You can come up with a theoretical range, right. but like that doesn't, you I know. think the only thing it's helpful for is understanding what assumptions you're making because right. it forces you to be like, okay, this is what I'm assuming the growth rate is going to be. And this is, but it still doesn't force you to figure out where that growth is going to come from. You're just saying my growth rate is going to be 20% a month. They're like, <laughs> okay. And, uh, and how are you going to do Yeah. <laughs> Too detailed for this. <laughs> but the crazy thing is they won't even ask for that. It's just like the numbers have to look right in year five. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, 10X in five years, yeah. right? That's the goal. So as long as you just throw up some numbers that sound good then yeah. hey you too can be an entrepreneur yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah so the only thing i was going to add for that other part i was i wanted to say was like this mentality that tim's talking about here requires you not to get emotionally attached to any of your goals yeah you have to be that's a big part of it yeah because you have to be willing to let it go if better data comes in yeah. I, I think he's got a term for this too. I mean, it's basically but sunk it's cost though. fallacy. Right? Yes, there is a sunk cost fallacy, but it's also like, there's also something weird of it's hard to design a perfect experiment in real life. So if the data is not showing what you think it's going to show, there's a chance you haven't designed the experiment right either. So you have to like look at that as well. Right. Because I've also seen, and I, I'm, I've probably been guilty of this as well, is you set up experiments so that they verify what you already yeah. want <laughs> to believe. Yeah. So yeah. Well, we, we talked about this a lot, right? It's kind of like hiring someone to tell you what you already know. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So that was just the only other thing is just like, if you have an emotional attachment to what you think the goal is or what you know you think the strategy is even, then you're not going to design the right experiment to disvalidate or validate. Right. You need to be to honest in how you design the experiments so that it can actually give you a no. Right. Right. Exactly. It needs to be exactly. It needs to be possible to give you a no. Right. Um, or it's kind of like um, this was in the 50th law as well. But I think it was like even the first part of the 50th law was about looking at reality with extreme clarity, mm, like yeah. seeing reality for what it is or something. I think it was you know something in the 50th yeah, law. Yeah, I think you're right. Like yeah. see reality as it truly is. But that is kind of like very much reflected here because if you're not doing that, and you're seeing it through either rose-colored glasses or maybe you want the experiment to show a no or something. Like whatever you want is kind of going back to the diagram. It's hard to verbally say what's in the yeah. diagram. But the box of like want should not infect the other boxes. Right. Like the other boxes, except for goal, I guess, because goal is an overlap of want and reality. But what you want should not infect the strategy. Like it should, I guess it 
it affects the strategy. It has to drive the strategy. Right, but it shouldn't infect the experiment's results. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't affect your like interpretation of the results. Yeah, I don't. I want Google AdWords to be my best channel because that's what I read in an article. Right, right. And then you make an experiment that's like I'm only testing Google AdWords. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not gonna give you the the data that you need. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like Dalio's got this in principles too, which we're gonna do in a few weeks. Where that I think that's like his number one rule. Is I know. All right, we got to get people excited. Yeah. Uh, I think that's his number one rule is that you have to get an accurate view of reality. Right? That's like the first thing you have to do for any goal setting, for any self-improvement, whatnot. Like you have to actually figure out what's true and what is true can be scary, but it's still better than not knowing what's true yeah. and like operating on something, you know, that you've made up or that you want to believe that isn't actually an accurate reflection of reality. I mean, it applies to things that are not business either. That exact thing that you just said, I mean, it applies like if someone's trying to like lose weight, but is in denial that they need to lose weight, like right. they're not seeing that they're overweight, they're not going to take the right steps. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like a, that's a perfect case because a lot of people who are overweight and trying to lose weight will lie to themselves about how much they eat, where they'll actually eat quite a bit more and they'll like snack late at night, but then they kind of like block it out from their self-reflection. Oh, and then that, like why know, eat a good breakfast, a good lunch, a good dinner or whatever. And- yeah. But then they'll like have these other snacks and just sort of like, you know, block them out in their mind and then they won't lose weight and then they'll get demotivated and like give up. But the main reason that they didn't is that they were lying to themselves of what they were doing. Right. And so, yeah, it's just like getting the accurate picture of reality is such an important first step. And going back to what we've talked to a few times, like Musk's little bit of social weirdness might help with that. Yeah, (laughs) He's just fine being a little bit. He might just be less emotional. Yeah, I think he's just less emotional. That sort of stuff. So that can actually maybe that's his hardware that actually helps him. the harder benefit. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Being a little less emotionally involved. But speaking of, you know, filling in the want box, there's this kind of famous story saying that when Musk was in college, he thought about what will most affect the future of humanity. And he put together a list of five things, Uh, the Internet, sustainable energy, space exploration, in particular, the permanent extension of life beyond Earth, artificial intelligence and reprogramming the human genetic code. Right. Which is crazy because it's literally (laughs) all that he has and is working on. Yeah. Right. His first two businesses were Internet businesses and then sustainable energy. We've got Tesla and SolarCity, space exploration, obviously SpaceX, artificial intelligence. So that's like open AI and all of that. And then reprogramming the human genetic code is kind of Neuralinky related. Sort of. Yeah. A little bit. It's more AI. Maybe this is like after. Yeah. After he's on Mars. Next. (laughs) Once he's on Mars, this is like what his it's the next thing on his to do. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I still got to get to this last one. Got to reprogram the human genome so you can survive in the martian atmosphere right it might be you might, might be have just easier. given away his might be easier than terraforming mars right yeah possibly less energy like way less energy intensive yeah it actually yeah. i mean depending on like the advances of things like crispr and stuff right, right? it right. might maybe it would be easier i don't yeah. know I, then it might be martians are actually humans of a different Although there's probably a limit to how much you can change the human genetic code, right? Like you're not going to suddenly start running off of what's in the Martian atmosphere, methane. And there's definitely CO2. I think there's a lot of CO2. Let's look at that. We got a computer. Yeah. Martian atmosphere. (laughs) Carbon dioxide. Okay, that's that's actually not so crazy. I feel like run like a plant. Yeah, exactly. Just suddenly you've got a whole green race of people, and <laughs> they... <laughs> so Martians are green. That's Martians are green. Right? There we go. Wait, that's probably why they were always green in those cartoons, right? I'm sure it was. Sure, there was. That I'm sure that was the reason. <laughs> And now suddenly there's going to be this whole new form of racism against green people. Like, like greenie is going to be a bad term. 
humans suck. You know it'll happen. <laughs> it definitely will. Like there'll be interplanetary travel. Yeah. People, be some... people will come back and say, oh, he's a fucking greenie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the humans from here would like go colonize their own, like a planet that already has this like green species of humans. There'll be like colonialism part <laughs> two. <laughs> Here's some blankets. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, okay well that got dark fast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay so so musk figures out these are the areas that he wants to focus on and that he thinks you know are going to really affect the future of humanity but what tim mentions here is that you know back then musk was in college he had you know no money or reputation connections anything and so his reality box was really small so he did what most young people or many young people do which is focus his early goals not around getting all of his wants but expanding the reality box and the list of things that were possible so he initially went to stanford was going to do a phd there focused on physics and such but quit after two days when he basically realized that it made more sense to make a lot of money and focus on engineering than to focus on just like physics and science i think he even said somewhere in the article well i guess he it was a quote that tim had put in there around uh science versus engineering yeah i've got that up here let's see I was at one point thinking about doing physics as a career. I did undergrad in physics, but in order to really advance physics these days, you need the data. Physics is fundamentally governed by the progress of engineering. This debate, which is better, engineers or scientists? Aren't scientists better? Wasn't Einstein the smartest person? Personally, I think that engineering is better because in the absence of engineering, you do not have the data. You just hit a limit. And yeah, you can be real smart within the context of the limit of the data you have, but unless you have a way to get more data, you can't make progress. Like look at Galileo. He engineered the telescope. That's what allowed him to see that Jupiter had moons. The limiting factor, if you will, is the engineering. And if you want to advance civilization, you must address the limiting factor. Therefore, you must address the engineering scientists there you go right like yeah. through and through right just if uh scientist but he's arguing against like studying science but in a very like, scientific yes, way exactly right, right yeah. which is a fascinating uh, strange loop really <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the way tim it. puts it is you know a and b are both good but b can only advance if a advances right. so i choose a it's like hyper realistic hyper realistic and it's also kind of the theory of constraints yeah type of way of thinking about we'll get to. science of progress <laughs> yeah teaser for next week yep uh, so his first two companies, you know, he started Zip2 with his brother. I didn't realize Zip2 made him that much money. Yeah, it's it, not bad. Yeah, right? it's a really good sum. It made, says he uh, walked away with $22 million. $22 million. I think it was, that wasn't the total acquisition. That was like his cut of it. His cut, yeah. Yeah, so he got $22 million out of Zip2. And then next came X.com, which turned into PayPal. And after three years, when eBay bought it, Musk made $180 million, which is crazy. Not bad. Yeah. And his whole story with PayPal too is like kind of messy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because X.com was his company. PayPal was Peter Thiel's company. And then they merged slash bought. Yeah, one they, of them bought the other, but then they merged. Thiel became Elon. the CEO. Well, they merged. Elon had the largest share and was the CEO. Right. And then the rest of the board like conspired to get rid of him. And they basically fired him as CEO I while he was on a plane. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on a plane when that happened, which yeah. is such they bullshit. They held an emergency bullshit. meeting while he was like on his private jet. Which I also makes me wonder what was going on that yeah. made that happen. Because it's not like he lost his stake. No, he kept all the stakes. So it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't a conspiracy to seize control back of, you know, of his shares or anything. It was purely an operational thing, which makes me wonder what was going on in the company like when that happened. Yeah, it's a good question. And he Uh, stayed on. That was the other thing. It's like he didn't. He stayed on as a board member. He stayed on as a board member. And it seems like he's still friendly with the crew because he got into that car accident with Peter Thiel in the car on Sand Hill Road. Have you read about that? That was like before he started Tesla. He was in a McLaren. Oh, that's right. When he crashed the McLaren. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
if nobody has looked at pictures from that time of Elon and Peter Thiel, they're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk ha- is like balding. He's like this tiny, skinny dude. He he looks like a nerd, like a total nerd. And you compare it to now, he's gotten really good hair implants or something, yeah. <laughs> right? He's like jacked. I heard he's not jacked though in person. Oh no. Yeah, I saw. I heard. I was talking to someone who saw him speak. Apparently, he's like not healthy uh, uh looking well he person. definitely he doesn't look healthy he looks no, but he's like not jacked oh okay like he's definitely wider so i'm sure he has worked out and gotten like more muscular as well but he's yeah. not like not normal okay. weight like not like it's not like somebody who's just trick. jacked yeah no like he's definitely got he's definitely overweight but hey you got to sacrifice the time somewhere I was he's, say, he's building what... five companies man. <laughs> like <laughs> that's the one thing that worries me about him is that he clearly does not take good care of himself yeah right like he's clearly not sleeping enough yeah. Like hyper stressed. He's always got those bags under but, his eyes. But taking back to first principles, he's probably done the calculus of like, maybe there's some life extension company that's working on. He's like, I'm aging slower than that company is making progress. Dude, maybe he's hanging out with Peter Thiel and getting transfusions maybe. of blood from they blood from kids. Are. They yeah. probably are. <laughs> if, nobody know, know, if nobody knows about that, we should like that article. <laughs> yeah. That is some crazy shit. <laughs> Musk hasn't been shown doing that, right? No, right. no, that's just a Peter Thiel thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that does anything? It, it's tangent time. It's been shown. <laughs> well, okay, it's been shown in rats and other animals that it does something. Okay, like a fairly significant uh, effect, actually. Yeah. Uh, How old is Peter Thiel? Because he does not look old at all. He's not that old. I think he's like fifties, sixties. Okay. Yeah, he looks uh, like he's like thirty-five, maybe. Let's see. Oh, yeah, sure. Hanging out with Donald Trump has made him age. feel older. Oh, he's fifty. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, he does not look fifty. He looks good. Wow, Musk is only forty-six. That whole mafia is amazing. The whole mafia is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just all like, it, the, I feel like the PayPal mafia in particular has been just like the most consistently impressive of any of those like groups. It's interesting too to see like, um, this is now truly a tangent, mm-hmm. but whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting to see too like, <laughs> <laughs> we're bootstrapping here. <laughs> um how like in different industries so in, in tech right it's definitely the paypal mafia that has like what it, like reed hoffman's part of that right yeah reed hoffman's um, part of it. max levchin yeah it's levchin teal, teal musk, musk and hoffman yeah which is insane but then there's like other people who are like who either worked for paypal or, or worked under these people after they left paypal so there's almost like a tree uh, okay of people right so in i know in football they talk about this all the time like coaching trees so where like assistants who've left and coach elsewhere like have gone on to do really good things so there's certain trees that are just like incredibly successful and then there's certain trees which are just not so um a good example is the 49ers in the 80s had um walsh was the guy's last name i remember the, yeah, the head walsh. coach yeah bill walsh he's written an interesting book too this book is read. great yeah the score yeah. takes care of itself yeah yep yeah. yep, yep. Uh, i haven't read that actually but i've heard very good things highly recommend it we'll link to my show notes, notes. or my, my book notes <laughs> <laughs> i'll read your notes first and then decide if i want to read it but his coaching tree is incredible. Like the number of Super Bowl winning coaches that have come off of that tree are like people who used to work for him basically or people who worked for people who worked for him. There's like so many, I, I forget the exact number, but it was just like a ridiculous number of Super Bowls. Whereas like the today's dynasty, which is like the New England Patriots, the assistants of Bill Belichick that have gone to go coach elsewhere mm-hmm. have like almost universally not been successful. <laughs> They've like all gotten head coaching jobs because yeah. they have very good pedigree, but then they almost like inevitably come back and coach for him again, mm-hmm. like three years later, like, they go off, get a head coaching job, fail, and then are brought back on as like a coordinator on his team. And uh, it's just, I don't know what the difference is. I, maybe Walsh's book will illuminate some of that because maybe he's like empowering his assistants more. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm guessing it's like a decentralization versus centralization thing. 
but it's just interesting to see these like trees in different industries like become like just everybody affiliated with that thing become successful i wonder what it was about them and about paypal because like to be honest i mean okay paypal was uh definitely a good advancement in technology but it's also like it seems like for what compared to what they're working on yeah (laughs) what they're working on now it seems like a very uh trivial yeah it seems kind of silly like the history of paypal is way more intricate than than what it may seem to us today. That's true. Like, I remember it was very complicated in how they described it. We do forget that it was the first process for sending money so over the internet. Online, so now online banking is like universal, right? Yeah. But like at that they time, it was not that. a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and th- I mean, that was what was cool too, is that X.com was meant to be the first online bank. Right. And I mean, actually PayPal's original goal was to make a new currency. Oh, interesting. I yeah. didn't know that. So they How meant to make libertarian? Like, internet <laughs> money, right? <laughs> like their goal was like, get everybody off the dollar. We'll transfer money online and stop. That's it was like a sovereign individual on. thing. That's something we're still working on. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Peter Thiel's talked about this where it's like PayPal did an amazing job of transferring money, but it never became like the standard for commerce or like it never became a currency of its right. own. Right. And then he was saying Bitcoin has been amazing for becoming a currency of its own, but it's done a very bad job as a means of transferring right. money. Right. Because it's and not so, a stable currency. Right. Yeah, not stable. And then like the block size is so small that like transactions take forever now. So and by the way, if you haven't listened to Sovereign Individual Cryptocurrency, you should listen to those episodes, <laughs> yep. too. Uh, but yeah, so apparently, like, I didn't know that about PayPal either, that that was one of their original goals. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay, but it makes sense, like knowing Peter Thiel. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No, exactly. that's what I was saying. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's like a very it now it makes a lot more sense about why he started that company. <laughs> right, right. Uh but yeah, so there's one story. Sorry, there's the last ahead, last I, thing about the history of PayPal. <laughs> there's one story about how they were raising a round and like somehow they were talking to this like Japanese investment group that turned out to be like the Yakuza's like front <laughs> movement for their money. And they turned them down. They were like, we don't want to work with you. Yeah. And then they wired them $30 million. Woo. Just out of like, just wired them the 30, basically like forcing them to take the money. Yeah. For, in exchange for the equity. This is also a dot com bubble. So things were a little nuts. Yeah. And then they had to like figure out how to wire it back. <laughs> They're like, we do not want to owe the Yakuza like, $30 million. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, I, I wonder if there's like a really good book about like the 90s, like internet cowboy stories. Because I would love to read that book. Yeah, I would <laughs> that'd be so much fun. Too. Well, it, it, isn't so much to write that. Isn't it also with PayPal that the initial money transfer service, like online, was not supposed to like be a thing because it was supposed to be PDA to PDA. Mm, yeah, I remember that. And yep. then they yep. made the web version of it just as like a demo, and then people started using it. Yeah, and they were like, "Wait, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to use it on the PDA." And it's like, "Well, but I can just use it <laughs> online." And then I think they spent a month or something trying to get people to stop using it online, use it on the PDAs, and they're like, "Wait." wait a second <laughs> but that's an instance of and coming mm. back into what we're <laughs> yeah, talking like about here flood geology yeah right? exactly it is exactly it's yeah. like what you thought was supposed to happen it's a pda to pda money transfer tool to where hold on let's take a step back what do we actually want what here? are we actually trying to do here? we don't want a pda to pda transfer <laughs> we want online money transfer right right and now we need to update our goal pool and design a new strategy and there, there we go. go the rest is history the rest is history <laughs> zip two PayPal. Uh, after PayPal, he left. He had all of this money, and then he started getting interested in rockets. Like we we read off the quotation about the math, and the the one thing that kind of gets left out here is that he didn't immediately start SpaceX. His first goal was to buy an ICBM from Russia. Right, I remember that story. <laughs> Send it to Mars with like a little planter. <laughs> 
so that it would like grow a plant on Mars in this little well, biome. Well, if there's a lot of CO2 on, on Mars, right? Like Theoretically possible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that part's not the limiting constraint. I mean, I guess there's less sun. Yeah, I don't think a plant can grow outside on Mars. I think right. there's some other factors. It would need to be like uh, almost a greenhouse type. Yeah, he was going to send a greenhouse little thing with a video camera to broadcast back the footage to Earth to get people excited about going to Mars. But then in trying to buy this- This is what I mean. Rocket, he's a good salesman. Yeah, he's a great he salesman. He knew that he needs to get this PR thing yeah. going. Well, but but that was how he discovered the cost, right? right? Is that he tried to buy an ICBM and it was going to be like $90 million. Right. And then he started doing the math and he's like, wait, this just does not add up, right? And that's why he started also, SpaceX. I about like you could buy an ICBM if you don't oh, yeah. You could just be like, well, <laughs> figure out who to go buy that from. Well, to be fair, this would have been early 2000s. So Soviet Union is probably still selling off all of its shit, right? Which is really frightening because there's a lot yeah. of people who had the money to buy the ICBMs. Well, they, they, Maybe that's how North Korea got their shit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they were definitely uh, denuclearized <laughs> ICBMs, just like shipping Musk a full like, warhead. It's like, you figure out what to do with the nuclear part. <laughs> yeah, have uh, fun. Yeah. Throw it in that mountain. And you go to Amazon, There's like they like have a disclaimer. It's like, these are not filled with nuclear warheads, but these are just the ICBMs. <laughs> have you seen Prime that? two days later? <laughs> have you seen that Amazon item? It's like uranium-237. No. Oh my God. There, there's this name. should be an affiliate link thing. Yeah. You know? I, I can't remember the exact totally name. Totally joking. It's, it's something like Amazon. It's something like Uranium 237 on Amazon. It, it's like fake, obviously. But no. there's <laughs> but there all of the reviews are like gag reviews. It's one of those products. <laughs> and so it's people like this gave me superpowers, right? Like I thought I wanted Uranium 236, but really Uranium 237 is the way to go, right? It's amazing. You'll spend an afternoon reading through them. They're hilarious. We'll, we'll, we'll find it and link to it. Elon Musk would not do that no no he had he had other things to do yeah. see he started spacex two years later he got introduced to the guys running what was then ac propulsion and he you know took over turned it into tesla what it is now two years after that he co-founded solar city with his cousins and then since then he's done hyperloop boring company Neuralink, OpenAI. I assume oh yeah he started a school at astra that one doesn't get talked about that much yeah so his kids were coming home from school talking about what they learned. And he was like, this is bullshit. Like you guys aren't <laughs> learning anything. So he got a few other SpaceX employees together who had kids around his kid's age. They hired some like great teachers from local schools and they just started their own 30 person school for SpaceX kids. And it's like a program that I think Elon designed with a few educational people. And it's very like unschooling, self-directed learning oh, style. Awesome. I wonder, yeah. I'm sure he doesn't run that day to day. No, no, I wonder no. if like, for NatChat, you can talk to the person who actually runs that. I've been thinking about be trying to get really somebody cool, from there on it. Yeah, that would be a really cool interview. Yeah, but that's just like another perfect that. example, right? <laughs> Where he was like, he was like, "All right, this school thing is bullshit. We're gonna yep. make a new one." Yep, and it's probably better than almost any school out there. It probably <laughs> like, is better than any school out there. Yeah, <laughs> like, not be surprised at all. <laughs> Because I mean, I feel like so many parents would have that reaction of like when their kids coming home, they're like, "What did you learn today?" And the kids like, "I learned addition." And like the parents like, "You're in third grade. Like, yeah. what is happening? This is bullshit." And then go on with their day. Right. And right. Elon's like well, working no, on like five companies <laughs> and is like, "Yeah, we're gonna make a new school. This is yeah. bullshit." <laughs> Yeah, we need to be a little more efficient with our time. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so this is where, uh, after like introducing all of Musk's history, Tim jumps into the comparison between most people's software and Elon's software. And a, a big part of it is 
this idea of like why, right? And getting down to the floor of the reason for something. So the example Tim gives is that as a kid, you always ask why about things like why, 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 you know, why is this the way? Why is that that way? And your parents are cool with it for a while. And then eventually they're just like, all right, shut up. It's because I said so. It's just the way it is. Were you a why kid? Right. I probably was. I don't know. So you come across as a why kid. I certainly was and pissed off a lot of people. I definitely was. I think like I mean, growing up just as the internet started to come online helped a lot. Mm, I forget you're young and yeah. two years younger than me. No, I, can, I can imagine just being kidding. a parent even five years earlier and not having that resource for your kids, right? But even when you're young, I feel like you play the Y game even when you're like not even five years old yet. Yeah, true. Right? I know when I was, my mom always tells me the story anytime I get too inquisitive about stuff. When I, I think she was driving me to preschool, I was like four. And I was like convinced that the school bus had school spelled wrong. Okay. Because there's an H in it. Because I was like just learning, I guess, how to spell at that time. And I was like, it's like, mom, the school bus is has is spelled wrong. And I was like really happy about it. And I was like pointing it out and that I like found the error or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, what do you she's like, it's possible. And she like saw it. She's like, it's not spelled wrong. And I was like so convinced. <laughs> and then she's like, no, it has an H. And I was like, why? And then she was like, because it's in there. And I was like, but why? It's school. S-C-O-O-L. <laughs> and then she's like, no, it has an H there. And then I'm like, <laughs> why? Well, and at a certain point, she just said, it's like, that's just how it is. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's stupid. <laughs> yeah, that would be the hard thing with some questions, right? Yeah. It's like, like, why is there an H? I still don't know why there's an H in that word. Yeah. Although I've thought about it a little bit. And what I would definitely do with my kid is I'd be like, well, let's go look it up. Right. And I would like show them yeah. how to like but figure stuff out. it's also easy for us to say that when we don't have kids. Yeah. Because if we also were working on all the stuff we're working on, plus you have kids, you're just gonna be like so overstretched for time. Well, no, but that's why you start you doing that with them now. early. Yep. Right. So that they learn how to look this stuff up on their own and then they don't ask you stupid questions right. anymore. <laughs> or they at least know how, what the answer, like where to go look for, where the, to answers. Go for the answer. Yeah. yeah. Or you can just make your own school. Or you can just make stuff like up. Elon. Yeah, or, or make you can your make your school. school. Yeah, it's like all those Calvin and Hobbes strips <laughs> yeah. where the dad just like makes up some ridiculous thing to explain Calvin's questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those, those days are gone. Like, I, 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 wish, I wish that was still possible. I know. Right? I, I always have this running joke that like for my kids, I'll just I'll change the name of one very common thing to some random like <laughs> word. Like the the fridge is called the floopy, right? And so I'll just always refer to it as the floopy, like, hey, can you get some milk from the floopy, right? And then one day they'll go to a friend's house and they'll be like, oh, like, do you have any like snacks in your floopy? <laughs> Fortunately, you're the worst. <laughs> you can't get away with that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Unless they're like Googling for it. They're like, yeah, they're like, like, I swear it's floopy. And they're like all Googling. They're like, what? <laughs> they can't find it. It's all like I've, all I've written Google's. an article. Yeah. <laughs> Gotten it to trend as number one. It's like the fridge is also known as the floopy. The uh, correct technical term is the floopy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put on Urban Dictionary, like floopy is an alternative name for the refrigerator made up by Natalie and to trick his children. <laughs> okay, we're way on a tangent now. This has been a very tangent filled, but good tangents. But good I feel tangents. Like. No, it's it's fun. We're having a good time. That's why I like doing these on Friday afternoons. Like, yeah. So it's, oh, yeah. People don't know that. People don't know yeah, these yeah. on Friday afternoons. This is how Neil and I end our week. We yeah. get to hang out, talk about something we've read. And uh, then you guys get to join us on Tuesday or whenever Saturday, Sunday, whatever yeah. day you want, whenever you want. I know you can even pause it and listen to it over multiple days. Maybe people listen are going to be listening to this on Mars when hey, that's possible. I'm sure there'll be podcasts. Fucking greenies. Yeah. <laughs> Careful, man. I know yeah, it's going to be green a, lives matter. It's going to be a hate. Crime. <laughs> I'll stop. Ooh, okay. I will stop. <laughs> it's a good thing we're not both white. That would be really bad. <laughs> All right. What are we on now? <laughs> Let's see. 
Oh, okay. So th- this is like his whole thing about with the chained Ys that we eventually develop all these beliefs that there's this like Y floor where we don't have an actual reason for believing it. It's just because somebody said it's that way or we were told that or it's the belief of our peers. And Tim doesn't use this word, but there's another article called Crony Beliefs by Kevin Simler. Okay. on melting I read that. yeah it's, it's a fantastic article like everybody listening should go read it it's on a site called melting asphalt which is his blog it's about this idea of crony beliefs which are beliefs that we keep in our head not because they are objectively true and we've carefully researched them or anything but because they are beneficial to maintain right okay. so it's not exactly the same as these cookie beliefs right like cook E beliefs, uh, but it's sort of a similar concept, right? Where we're not holding on to an idea because we've thought about it really rationally. It's just sort of in there for some other reason. And what uh, Tim is saying, and like this whole thinking like Elon first principles reasoning, is that you have to dig down and ask, you know, why, 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 why do I believe this? Why do I believe that? Why do I believe this and that and that? And the example he gives here, which I love, is the Great Depression mindset. So I'll just read from the article here. Uh, this is like a little bit long section, but it's a good explanation. Say you have an overbearing mother who insists you grow up with her values, her worldviews, her fears, and her ambitions because she knows best, because it's a scary world out there, because XYZ is respectable, because she said so. Your head might end up running your whole life on because mom says so software. If you play the why game with something like the reason you're in your current job, it may take a few whys to get there, but you'll most likely end up hitting a concrete floor that says some version of because mom says so. But why does mom say so? Mom says so because her mom said so after growing up in Poland in 1932, where she was from a home where her dad said so because his dad, a minister from a small town outside Krakow, said so after his grandfather, who saw some terrible shit go down during the Siberian uprising of 1866, ingrained in his children's head the critical life lesson to never associate with blacksmiths through a long game of telephone your mother now looks down upon office jobs and you find yourself feeling strongly about the only truly respectable career being in publishing and you can list off a bunch of reasons why you feel that way but if somebody really grilled you on your reasons and on the reasoning beneath them you end up in a confusing place it gets confusing way down there because the first principles foundation at the bottom is a mishmash of the values and beliefs of a bunch of people from different generations and countries a bunch of people who aren't you Then he goes on and says that a common example of this in today's world is that many people I know were raised by people who were raised by people who went through the Great Depression. If you solicit career advice from somebody born in the U.S. in the 1920s, there's a good chance you'll get an answer pumped out by this software. And the software, it's an image from the blog, but it basically says that uh, the world is scary, jobs are scarce. From the blog, it's saying like what you want is security, lots and lots of security because the world is a super scary place. Therefore, your goal pool should only consider doctor, lawyer, teacher, corporate ladder, and your strategy should be to never get fired. Right. So don't take any risks. Yeah, don't take any risks. Like you got to be super safe because the world is scary. And a lot of people still do their thinking with the software that came from 1930. And if they installed that same software in their children's heads and their children then passed it on to their own children, a member of today's generation might feel too scared to pursue an entrepreneurial or artistic endeavor and be totally unaware that they're actually being haunted by the ghost of the Great Depression. Right. I love that <laughs> it's section. So it's cool. so cool. I was literally listening to... Um, this is more like uh, around your own actions, what I'm about to say, but it's the exact same thing as what Tim just showed in, but just he's looking at it historically. In Jordan Peterson's biblical series, there's like, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase from the Bible, but there's something about like your generations, which basically means like your future children and then their children's children and their children's children and all that. And the point of the passage was basically like what you do now will like 
reverberate forever basically and it's like you don't know what actions you take now and how those actions will reflect like even 200 years from now because just like this example something that someone in what was it 1866 yeah the siberian uprising of 1866 what that person ingrained in their children's heads reflected in 2015 exactly yeah when that person little things long 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 dead yeah right so it's it's just very interesting that like those kinds of things carry down. And it's so true. It's like so many of the beliefs that we probably have are just legacies of things that are not in our reality. Yeah. And that's the biggest challenge for any of us is rooting out what bad beliefs we've gotten into our system from how we were raised. Yeah. Into our software from how we were raised, the people that we spent time around, right? Like the institutions that we were in, right? Like, I mean, there were all these things that college definitely made me believe were true that I had to go outside and realize just like weren't so. Right. Right. And you get that from your peers. You get it from your parents. You you don't have a degree in podcasting? I do not, actually. How are you a podcast? In fact, I never took a class in podcasting. What? Yeah. (laughs) Not even a minor? Not even a minor, (laughs) man. No. No. Radio journalism. Yeah. They probably would have told us not to go on so many tangents. <laughs> the core of this is dogma, right? Right. Yep. So he's got this great quote from Richard Feynman. Oh, I love this. Yeah. I, Have you read any books by Richard Feynman? Yeah. Uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Yeah, Feynman. I love that. It's fantastic. I love that book. Uh, I don't know what's the matter with people. They don't learn by understanding. They learn by some other way, by rote or something. Their knowledge is so fragile. A lot of us just know things because we have this dogma, this crony belief, this just like following what somebody else told us to believe and to think and do. And that's what's created our life path. Which is how a lot of school is, though. It's like yeah. it's like the answer to this is this because you just memorize the rule or you memorize the fact, but that's not really knowledge. No. The example of this that I heard that I really loved was like learning math. So the way you learn math usually in school is you go progressively through a textbook and it will be something like it'll introduce like a quadratic function or like the quadratic formula, right? It's been a long time since I did math in school. Uh, and then it will give you a bunch of problems where you apply the quadratic formula to, you know, the like algebraic equation that you have. But that's like not how it works in the real world. Like you'll get some weird thing and you have to figure out how to solve it. And you have to figure out what tool to use exactly. at that particular moment. That's the key thing, yeah. right? Like but you never learn that. It's like we're doing the unit that we're doing this week is the quadratic formula. Yeah. So you know, so you're probably going to use. Gonna yeah, like it's like <laughs> <laughs> so. And that's just like it's such a weird way of learning. Kind of what Feynman's talking about here is people just don't like figure things out. They're just applying whatever's handed to them. Right. And it's a very fragile way to construct your knowledge and your understanding of the world. It's not based on first principles. And in this case, we're talking about it's being based on dogma. So then would you say the anti-fragile way is first principles? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. Yeah. But because then you can deal with all the second order changes that happen and it's no. You can respond better. You can respond to them. Yeah. Whereas otherwise, it's just like things are changing and you have like no idea what's going on or why they're changing. Right. And no ability to interpret them. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you're thinking from a first principles level, you can be like, well, what, which of these first principles is no longer true or what's changed at that level? Whereas if you're only seeing the second order effects, you're just. You're just going to be lost. Yeah. Like if your definition is, okay, you should never get fired. You should never take any risks. That was totally true. <laughs> Maybe in like the Great Depression time, because right. like you might not be able to feed yourself and your family if you got fired. Right. But like obviously reality changed and seemingly jobs are a lot more abundant and whatever. But you're, if you never examined why, you know, what actually changed, then you're still operating off that second order rule of thumb, which is never get fired. Right. Never take any risks. Right. 
even though the underlying reality is totally different. Yeah, I, I was thinking of a similar example too with college students like applying for jobs where oh yeah uh, like job and fairs and stuff i've seen well kind of like with job fairs but i've seen this happen a few times where somebody will be on like the finance path right and like oh, i'm gonna go do investment banking and they'll go to a couple of internships and then they'll really hate it and they'll say like okay well, i'm gonna go do something else but then they'll still just go to the career fair and see what's there and still just apply for jobs so they'll use the exact same methodology that got them into the problem in the first place and just like point it in a slightly different direction right it, it would be like uh, so as a very tangential but similar example right like say that every person you've ever dated you picked up in a bar okay. right oh and they, they always like, end up being like kind of like scummy and you know yeah. maybe they cheat on you and, and like you're just like but then but you it's keep like going you back keep going back you go to a different bar you go to a different bar but you're still <laughs> picking up somebody at the bar at yep. 3 a.m right yep. like good Great to date people probably aren't hanging out in the bar at 3 a.m. on Tuesday. Right. But if you don't change. <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, no offense to anybody who hangs out in bars at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't date you. But, uh, but it's like, yeah, if you never change that underlying method that you think is going to make you happy, you're probably not going to get the better result, right? Nah, that's such a good point. That's such a good way of, of thinking about it. That's a really good example. And in the student's example, it's like, all right, well, how do we, how else do I go after work, right? It's like, aside from career fairs and what's available to me, right? right? Like, maybe I go meet somebody at the dog park, right? <laughs> yeah, it could just be, to, I mean, yeah. You have to like change, you have to go as deep as possible to really try to change the Keep asking the why questions, basically, yeah. yeah. And he's got this great example here where, you know, basically people will reject dogma and think they're being independent thinkers, but then they'll immediately latch onto another dogma, hmm. right? So they're not actually being independent, they're just, switching up one dogma for another right yeah and you know that could be a function of they start to understand there's like a difference in the underlying reality right but they just trade dogmas basically have you seen that i've seen people do it with nutrition a lot yeah nutrition's a big one but they'll be like super vegan for like <laughs> a little bit and then they'll be like super paleo and then they'll be like super something else like yeah but they're that's the dogma part of it like they're not basing it off first principles. No, no. It's just like, this is a tribe that I can join, right? right? I can be like, oh, I'm CrossFitter yes, now, right? Exactly. <laughs> CrossFit's a perfect example like of it. It's like the first rule of CrossFit is yeah. you have to tell everyone you're in CrossFit. <laughs> tell everyone you're in CrossFit, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, what, what's the joke? If somebody is a, uh, a Harvard graduate who does CrossFit, which one will they talk about first? <laughs> <laughs> a vegan Harvard grad who does CrossFit, which one will they talk about first? Yeah. That's a great question. I don't know. That's a... Uh, but they might end up like, uh, the, like, remember the donkey analogy thing? Where, like, yeah, exactly. Burden's ass. They just like, they can't say anything because they're not sure which <laughs> one to drop. speak about. All right. Shouldn't, I shouldn't make Harvard jokes, but. <laughs> Why not? I know your sister goes there, yeah, but that's okay. That makes it better. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're love, allowed to. Love you, Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you can tell if she's actually listening. Yeah, exactly. She, she sends you an angry text. <laughs> If she never does, then you could be like, I know you don't listen to my podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and actually, this Louis C.K. quotation here is perfect, too. And I've kind of always thought this way about political parties as oh, well, yeah. where Louis is saying, some things I think are very conservative or very liberal. I think when somebody falls into one category for everything, I'm very suspicious. It doesn't make sense to me that you'd have the same solution to every issue. Right. Man, we need so much more of this in yeah. real life because like so much tribalism right now. Oh, yeah. Like it's all political stuff. It's just gotten so insane where you literally can't say anything contrary to the dominant tribe's views right. or you just get destroyed. Whichever right. tribe that you're affiliated with, if you 
or whichever right. tribe people think you should be affiliated right. yes, with. Yes, that's true too. Right. Or where your social circle is is a part of or whatever. Uh, but you know, the interesting thing is like anyone I know who's like thinking I respect probably would echo this Louis C.K. quote. Uh, but we're also very self-selecting they, with that, yes. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm saying like people who think in the same way of like, so yeah, people who think the same way as us, I guess, are not really sure what tribe to affiliate with. Right. Because as he's saying, like some things are very, very <laughs> conservative, some things are very liberal. It's like but weird to be in the same bucket. Is that? But are we all in our own tribalism? Bucket? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say like. It's a good point. It's a strange loop. <laughs> I don't have any friends who are like doctors, right? Okay. In med do. school. I do you have a few? Yeah, okay. I have a few. All right. Or I, do you have any friends who smoke regularly? Who smoke hookah regularly, but okay. not smoke cigarettes. Yeah, I was thinking cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. Smoke hookah regularly. That's one thing. No. Or how about, do you have any friends who like go to church every Sunday? I have friends who I would say are religious, but not like every Sunday religious. Right. But that's like almost but that's another, half of that's the country, a, exactly, right? Or it's right. like a third of the country right. or something. That's a good point. Right. But like, I literally could not name a single person who I've talked to in the last six months who goes to church every Sunday. Right. Okay. Here's the other thing though, yeah. because our social circle does not necessarily approve of that behavior. Is it something some people do, but they don't talk about it? Probably. It's probably part of it. The too. smoking thing is it would be easier to tell if they smoke yeah. or not because they'd probably get very antsy around you. But yeah. the church thing, I could see it happening where somebody just wouldn't talk about it. Cause it's kind of the opposite of notice with religion of like, it's like the opposite of CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's amazing how fast that changed. Yeah. Or like 20, 30 years ago, if you said that you weren't religious at all, like that would probably have been right. taboo. Like I know people who go to a mosque every Friday or, or I definitely know uh, Jewish people who observe the Sabbath the and like, yeah. and they go to the synagogue and, but they don't necessarily like put it in your face. Like they do, or they're offline all Saturday, right? Until uh, sundown, like they're offline Friday, sundown to Saturday, sundown, but they won't like tell like they won't be like oh you should be doing this too like they're not like missionary about it in right. any way well i think the um, jewish faith says not to do that. oh okay cool yeah yeah i think they well, i guess christianity is not like that yeah christianity general, and islam they're much more they say that you're supposed to try to convert people yeah. and then i think with judaism it's supposed it's to like opposite. discourage people from oh interesting converting. okay yeah. so it's more like a closed tribe as opposed yeah. to like expanding the tribe as much yeah. as possible but even like the people i know who do go to a mosque every friday like they don't tell like you would find out good friends with them, but they won't be like they won't wear it on their sleeve necessarily. I don't know. It's very interesting. Like, but religion's one of those things where I think maybe maybe we do affiliate with some people who are more religious, but we just wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. Well, the smoking thing's also, a good point. There's a lot of people that smoke. A lot of people that smoke. And yeah. I don't, yeah really I don't know a single person who no. smokes regularly. Yeah. Except when they're drunk, right? But, yeah. I know a couple people who will like pick up a cigarette here and there, but they're not like, like I wouldn't call them smokers. Like yeah. not, they wouldn't have like a pack of cigarettes on them all the time. Right. Right. But there's this distinction here, which is helpful between blind tribalism and conscious tribalism. Yeah. Where yep. blind tribalism is that like the tribe's dogma doubles as the identity of the tribe members. Yep. So when you're trying to figure out what you think about something, you look to the tribe yeah. to tell you what to think. Uh, and so that could be like, well, this is bad because the Bible says it's bad. Like, this is good because Ayn Rand says it's good. Right. Right. Like, this is what I'm going to do because that's what like Tim Ferriss does. Right. Like, that's blind tribalism. That's bad. But then conscious tribalism, which is, I think, more what we're talking about, where it's like, I just like people who think in these same ways I do. Right. And so I'm going to hang out with them. Right. But I'm not going to base my opinions on what the rest of the group yeah, does and which i think is reflected in the fact that like you and i disagree on some things like it's not like we agree on everything yeah. and i don't even know what some of our friends think on certain issues like i can't i couldn't tell you what justin thinks on like issue x right like, i think i can probably guess in some cases but there's some things where i would have no idea 
like, for example, even for, for me, like I'd say we all fall in this sort of like if you were looking at from like a 30,000 foot view, we're probably in the same bucket, like millennial men living in big cities, whatever. I think my opinion on UBI is like different than a lot of people in our mm. bucket. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like both of our thinking on it has evolved okay, from yeah. doing this podcast. I used to think it was a good idea. I used to think it was a great idea yeah. until we started doing like Sovereign Way of Zen and Sovereign Individual and, like, and a few of those. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, this is actually not. This might actually be a idea. horrible this might be a really, thing. Yeah. <laughs> and there was that article too. I think you shared it. Yeah. The around tyranny, the, threat of tyranny. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. of like the voter thing, like you're not technically a customer of government anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that whole study of how politics is influenced by the economic structure, I yeah. thought was fascinating. Yeah. I'd never I had thought never of thought about before. it before. No. Yeah. But what, I would say a lot of people in our bucket yeah. are supporters of UBI. Exactly. A lot of, so especially in the like, tech scene. Right. Like, exactly. Oh, this is exactly. the solution. Right. We just give people money. Even Musk actually is a big supporter of UBI. Yeah. Uh, he even said something today. I saw like, something on Twitter where he was taught, he was uh, at some conference and he dropped that again. He said, it's going to be necessary for humanity moving forward, which I'd want to dig into why he thinks that. Like, I yeah. wish, it, wish we could ever like ask him because I'm sure he's aware of a lot of these issues around it but maybe he's done the calculus of like well the alternative would be way worse or something yeah i don't I mean, know it, and to be fair i don't disagree with him there yeah the alternative where, would be possibly pretty bad too like i i actually think that ubi will be necessary but i do not think that just giving people money like that is going to work like that won't be good there will have to be something some sort of structure to attached to it right like yeah. the core idea of like a very aggressive reverse income tax milton friedman style like yeah. that probably wouldn't work just because like you know you give people plenty of money and like no meaning to their life and no ability to contribute right, right? like that's probably not going to work out very well right. so there'll have to be something seems like a recipe for revolution UBI. actually it, yeah like some like kind of like I don't know, self-destructive. I mean, you can imagine behavior. how easily that would become a revolution where you'll have this hyper-privileged top one to 10% of the population who get to be rich because they're the only ones who can contribute to society anymore. Right. And then the other 90% are basically excluded. And then because they don't have access to all this other stuff, their children will be excluded and their children's children will be excluded. And you'll get like more rapid divides yeah right and that's not necessarily a desirable situation no. <laughs> it's great to be in one of that like top 10 percent, but maybe for maybe, a period of time yeah, period it's of probably time, good until, until you realize until that there's, there's more guns than people in the right, u.s and, like, yeah exactly and then like you have to go bot. listen to the emergency episode yeah. on made you think uh <laughs> well I, I was gonna say a sovereign individual one really changed my mind on it too because it's mm -hmm. like how are who's actually going to be the one paying for UBI yeah. if it's easy to get the money out of the country. Yeah, if you can just throw it on Bitcoin and go yeah, to Thailand. Yeah, it's just like, where's the money going to come from too? Uh, yeah, anyway, this is that was a, a total tangent, but it's just like, I don't... I was saying, like, I think this conscious tribalism, like, yeah. we definitely identify with a certain group of people, mm -hmm. like this sort of tech crowd of people our age, but we don't necessarily all agree on every single issue is where I was trying to get. get and that's at. a really good way to test, too. And going back to the article, Tim actually mentions this, that if you want to test how tribal somebody is or how tribal a group is, is like just openly disagree with yeah. a statement. Right. And like, I, I don't know, I find this so frequently that with a lot of people, if I disagree with them in a group conversation, yeah. It's like I it's like I punch them in the face, yeah. right? And I don't like I like having discussions, right? right. I like being able oh, you to do? argue with people. Yeah. We have <laughs> uh, how far are we? An hour yeah. and a half? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's it's you learn by disagreeing and like yeah. having, you know, a conversation. But some people I just find like if you challenge them on core tribal beliefs, they just immediately shut down. It becomes very confrontational very quickly. And that's definitely a blind tribalism thing. And, and to be 100% fair, I'm sure I do that on some things as well. Yeah, I'm sure there are right? things. And that's why maybe it's called blind tribalism. Maybe yeah. we're blind to it. Maybe. But yeah, I think I see this a lot with like online discussions among mm. both like 
political sides of the spectrum yeah or sides of the political spectrum oh there was a case that i saw being talked about a lot on twitter this week that well i guess when people are listening to this it won't be this week anymore <laughs> four, four or five weeks ago four or five yeah. weeks ago there was a case in canada where i want to say it was two somali immigrants legal like not it's not like an illegal immigrant thing they're canadians now like they live in canada and the guy was accused of raping his wife multiple times and in their like the defense was basically in their culture that's not a thing because once you're married it's not rape anymore right but in canada it is very much proven and in america as well that you can rape your like it is rape if your wife does not consent yeah. to having sex with you it's still rape yeah. even though she's your wife it's not a possession but so his the guy's defense was basically like in my culture like this is allowed and he won wow it's a, appealed already it was already yeah. like said they were gonna file for appeal but it was breaking up the like liberal tribe on Twitter because some people were saying like, absolutely, it should be appealed. It's like very clear in Canadian law, like that's rape. But the judge basically was like, the guy didn't know because it's like his culture. That's why the judge ruled in, I guess, in his favor. I guess it wasn't without a doubt that he knew what he was doing is wrong, but I don't know if that is a valid defense. Anyway, I'm not a lawyer, but whatever it was. The thing that was interesting to me was people's reactions on Twitter because it was like, in that tribe, it's like totally about like both women's rights and multiculturalism. Right. And how does the tribe go in that case, right? Because yeah. in this case, it was one against the other. And people were like kind of having a what I like to call a tornado tantrum <laughs> on, on well, Twitter and, because of that. Because they didn't know what to believe or what side to be on. What side to argue on. Yeah. I mean, and that's been like, uh, and this is like a very politically incorrect thing to talk about, but it's something go. that has been one of the big arguments against the like mass taking in of refugees and immigrants from Middle Eastern countries, especially in Canada, is that it would bring in this like very different well, society, it's not culture. A liberal culture. Like yeah. if you... And Look then, at it. It's not. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And so then you have to decide, like, well, you either have to conform to, you know, a Canadian worldview and, you know, much more socially progressive mindset or like we have to honor your laws. Right. But like they're kind of incompatible. They're, right. Yeah. There's not emerging. You can't like yeah. come live in Canada and still have Sharia law right. or anything. Right. Like right. that's just not going to work. Right. And so that does create like a really interesting conflict in, well, what do you do with these people? Right. Yeah. It's like, it's really easy to shit on Americans who are like, oh, well, if you're going to come to our country, you got to speak English and like, act American. Right. But, but the on some level yeah. you do. Right. Like, and historically, when immigration happens in America, that is what happens. Yeah. Like people become American. And that's not saying like you shouldn't eat your country's food. You shouldn't like still speak your country's language or have your culture. But right. like, like you got to at least conform the, the Americanized, like, OK version of your culture. Yeah. It has to be a little like Americanized. Yeah. Sanitized, yeah. I guess. Right. right? Because like, now you're living balance? in this society. Yeah, like you can't go rape your wife. Like right. that's a pretty, um, I think, universally agreed in Canada and in America that like you can't do that. There's parts of the world where perfectly that's perfectly legal a, in some parts. Of exactly. The world. Yeah. There's a lot of parts of the world where that's totally fine if you you know because that's in their you know laws or religion or whatever it is that that's legal. But it's not in Canada and it's not in America. Yeah. So. So yeah, it's like you do have to obey actually, our laws when you come here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, I can see how that would create such like a weird tribal split. And to be fair, like the far left is particularly bad about like eating itself. Right. Where <laughs> <laughs> eating itself. It's like, I don't think there's anybody that somebody on the far left will get into more fights with than other people on the left. Oh, right. That's what you meant by that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the sense of like, 
like no this is what you should think like to be a good person because oh, there's like this okay. moral hierarchy yeah or like like moral yeah, there's a moral hierarchy right like, which not, is why i think this case threw such a wrench into that right because exactly, it's like right. who's ahead of who is it like women's rights or is it multiculturalism yeah. that's higher and then people disagree on that exactly right and there's it's, something in particular with like strong social liberalism where there's this notion of like moral certainty mm, I that find, you know you're right that you know you're right and anybody who disagrees with you is a bad person oh yeah it's not right? just that they're wrong it's not just that they're wrong or that they bad. disagree with you is that they're bad right that's a whole different thing yeah it's sort of like the abortion argument right it's like there are fairly strong ethical arguments on both sides there are but in particular people and this happens on both sides right but you'll assume that if somebody disagrees with you like they're evil right yeah it's like oh either they want to kill babies on one side that's what you always hear yeah and then on the other side you hear that like women shouldn't have rights right yeah, so they basically take the argument to the logical extreme and then assume malice on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Both sides do that. Yeah, both yeah. sides do that in that case. Uh, and that's like definitely a form of this blind tribalism. And it's sort of a useful heuristic, right? When you assume that somebody else believes something because they're a bad person, that's probably not true, right? <laughs> it's probably that you don't fully understand the viewpoint, right? Like, I definitely. Which is we're asking why it comes in handy. We're asking why it comes in handy. Make people uncomfortable, but. It's I mean, like I, I definitely and the reason I always use the the abortion example for this is that that was how I thought was that I was like, wow, if somebody doesn't think that women should have like complete right to choose, then they're like obviously a bad person. You don't think women should have rights. Yep. And they had a really good ethics professor who like argued the other side of it. And it was like, oh, OK, right. There is like <laughs> actually a nuanced yep. issue. And that's just been kind of a useful tool. And I think it is good for you with tribalism as well, right? If you think that somebody disagrees with you because they're a bad person and they have like bad morality, it's probably more complicated. It's funny how you can see that for like almost any controversial issue that becomes true. It's like even like the healthcare thing. It's like, yes, people should have access to healthcare, but then it's like access to healthcare also means you have access to doctor's time, which is a a doctor's a person. So you're basically saying they have to work for a either, you know, for free or if they're saying it's free or you have to somehow structure a way where that person's now compensated for their time. And then of course it costs money to make medicine. So it's like, it's not quite as simple as like everyone should have free healthcare. Yeah. Um, And how much healthcare, right? right? How much healthcare and like like what what counts as healthcare? Like do cosmetic surgeries count as healthcare? Mm -hmm. Probably not, but maybe under some people's arguments, they could say they need that. What about like changing your gender? Does that count as a like transgender surgery? Like, does that count as? Yeah, like should that fall under healthcare? Birth control? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't like that's so there's a lot of nuance to these things. Yeah. Because there have to be guardrails, obviously, in all of these things. And I mean, same thing with like immigration. There's almost all, if anything is up for debate, there's There's, a fairly compelling (laughs) argument on both sides. On both sides, exactly. Right. And if there weren't, then it would have like been rushed through already. Right. There's no argument over murder. Like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Nobody's like arguing, saying that like, oh, murder is, you know, a good thing. We should like, (laughs) let a little bit of it happen. Right. Like, Every could, state should get a murder quota that like, yeah, exactly. they're allowed. No. I would allow for like uh, you get to hit one person with your car each year if they're like really being a dick in the sidewalk <laughs> and like blocking you. Right. Maybe, maybe on that end. Uh, but <laughs> this is how, this is how I'm going to end up on a watch list. <laughs> that, that is joking. For, uh, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> for anyone who's going to take him literally. <laughs> quote him. No, but and we've we've been on this tribalism point for a while now but like i think that but it's an interesting one because it, it does show yeah. you when you are use, you know maybe not using first principles is even for yourself yeah. there are some things where i found like myself defending and i'm like wait why oh this is a great one actually because it was just this week i was listening to a podcast where um uh there's a podcast called uh, good beer hunting and it's a podcast for beer nerds but they were interviewing the founder of magic hat 
And the founder of Magic Hat and the founder of Sam Adams have very different beliefs on what the definition of craft is for craft beer. And that's a big debate in the, the industry. So the founder, Sam Adams, wants to make like essentially exclude the big beer companies. The uncomfortable fact is that he also has a big beer company now. They're a multi-billion dollar company now. But for years, they they basically controlled the organization that defines craft beer because they started it. So they keep upping the volume limit to be qualified as craft. So they're <laughs> included, but anybody bigger than them is not basically. That's great. <laughs> um, and whereas the guy from Magic Hat is saying that basically what you're saying is that if a brewery is owned by a bigger beer company, they are now excluded. So what we're saying is that if you exit, you are kicked out of the club. And what he's basically his point is that like, we're basically saying that if you succeed, you are a traitor Mm. to the club. And he was like, no other industry does this. Like, he's like, if you sell your company to Google, you are not considered, you're not like excluded from the tech industry forever. And I actually used to be on the side of the Sam Adams guy because I didn't didn't understand the full thing. And I would like blind, like I've heard this argument before, but I just hadn't heard it broken down. And when I first was listening to it, I was like, oh, this guy's wrong. Like big beer, ah, big beer sucks. And then like, when he brought the Google point, it like took me out of the matrix basically. <laughs> of, like, uh, yeah. And I was like, wait, how come in one context, I don't like hate founders who sell to big tech companies, but in a beer context, I would like definitely look down on a brewery founder who sold to like Heineken. I'd be like, oh, they sold out. Mm-hmm. But I don't say that for anybody I know who sold a company to Apple or Google or it's Amazon. Consistency. Yeah, you celebrate them. Yeah. In our end, in tech, you celebrate them. It's like, wow, he sold, he had to exit to Amazon. Wow, gr- great bet. job. Like, yeah. awesome. Like, that guy knows what he's doing. But in beer, it's like, no, that guy is a trader. And it's very weird. So it, I completely changed my mind, but I found myself having that sort of blind tribalism feeling. Initially, I, I love when you find something like that that makes you completely rethink yeah. an issue that you felt fairly certain about. But it usually uh, happens when you when someone presents it in a cognitive dissonance kind of way. Like if he didn't use the Google example, I yeah. would not have. I would have stayed on the side I was on. Mm. But in this, when he brought up the Google thing, I realized I was like, wow, I have two different opinions for the same issue. Like, what's the difference? There's no difference. So here, I, I want to float this one by because this happened to me recently too. Okay. How do you feel about? encryption backdoors and iPhones. Like, do you think mm-hmm. the government should be able to get into your iPhone or not? I would I would say no. Okay. But then so, I'm going to have this flipped on me. I know it's like so a that, jiu-jitsu that's, move that's coming thought, on. That's what I thought too, right? <laughs> and then I heard a really good interview and I think it was Sam Harris and someone. And I think Sam made this point where he was like, he was like, there's nothing special about your phone and your phone data. If you're suspected of a crime, the government can come into your house and go through it and look for evidence. Yeah. They can go through any papers that you have, right? And we don't, we wouldn't want to live in a world. They can go to your bank where, account too, right? I think so, yeah. They can right. go through your bank statements. They can go through everything, credit card transactions. We wouldn't want to live in a world where you get a magical place that you can stash a gun used to kill someone. <laughs> like That's true. Where you can stash your getaway car and then the government isn't allowed to go in it. That's a right? good point. That's not really a desirable world. Right. So what's special about these devices? And we haven't committed that in the real world. Exactly. Either. There's no other place in the world where we do this, where we say, no, the government isn't allowed to look for criminals within this. Yeah. We don't say, oh, yeah, you're not allowed to come into someone's house or like you're not allowed to yeah. come into their car. Or and whatever. it's not yeah. like houses can't be burgled. Right. right. That was the other argument against well, the back yeah. door. Right? right. Was that like, oh, well, if we add a back door on iPhones, so governments can inspect them, then people will be able to hack in. And it's like, 
Okay, yeah, <laughs> but we also, again, you know, we don't want like criminals to be uncatchable. Right. And they were saying, uh, the other person was saying this because I think he was an ex-FBI. He was saying that there are actually like tons of cases where they know exactly who did it and they know where the proof is and it's on the phone, but they can't go in and get it oh, wow. because they're so not people allowed. people just get away. People just get away. And there are also cases where a, like a woman will get raped and murdered and she'll like take a photo of the person doing it and it'll be like on her phone and they can't go in and get it because wow. they don't have like this back door to go in and retrieve it. And Apple is saying like, no, we won't give it to you. This right. just happened on air. My opinion flipped on I, something. Exactly, like, exactly the same thing happened to me. I was like, oh wow, okay, yeah, they should definitely be able to do that. Yeah, especially right? when you brought up the house example. Yeah. Like, it's see, like, they're, it's like they, they, they can go into your house. It brings up yeah. cognitive dissonance because it's like, okay, if you also say there shouldn't be search warrants for someone's house, then it's a different story. Right. Then it's like, if you do like, cause you know how like if somebody does hold that position, then it's like, you can't flip them with that argument. If someone's basically saying like there's there shouldn't be a such thing as search warrants, that's like wrong. Then it's like your argument is not going to work. But on once them. they have the search warrants, once you get that, yeah. you get that foot in the door. It's then there's like, nothing special about yeah. a phone. Yeah, right? there isn't. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I love that feeling. I'll, cool. I'll plug another uh, Sam Harris one here. He's got a great article called "The Riddle of the Gun." Have okay. you read that? No. So that was the first one that made me think that maybe gun banning like wasn't a good solution, and that like gun ownership oh i have read that one actually i think you might have sent it to me at one point a deal sent it to both of us I okay think. yeah yeah so i know his opinion flipped on this yeah that was, well was the same for me that. like yeah. i read it and i was like oh wow okay this is way more nuanced than i thought yep uh and i, I just love finding those things because you'll have that first reaction where you'll you have that first you reaction hear the of, premise yeah and you're like no like bullshit and then you read it and you're like oh yeah. no not bullshit yeah <laughs> <laughs> you feel your brain like hanging on yeah it's like it's like, wait, but and then it like slowly dies. Like, yeah. like oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the things uh, Kevin Simler says in his crony beliefs article is that a really easy way to identify a crony belief is that you have an emotional reaction to challenges to it. Because if you react emotionally to an idea being challenged, that means that you didn't base that idea on like logical analysis. You based uh, it off yeah. of like, you know, social acceptance or personal validation or something. Because if, you know, if you walked in tomorrow and you were like, hey, Nat, uh, your website got hacked. You need to fix it. Right. I wouldn't have like an emotional angry reaction. I'd be like, oh, like, thank you. Like, yeah. I need to go fix that. Yeah. Right. But if you walked in and you were like, hey, Nat, like your website's really ugly and it looks like shit. <laughs> Right, like my first reaction is probably gonna be like, fuck you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but so obviously there's way more emotion and stuff tied up in the second one. Yep. And that's like a very easy way to figure out how much of it is based on like a rational analysis yeah. is how emotionally you react to new information. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good heuristic too. We should probably move on from tribalism. Yeah. But that was fun though. That was fun. That, that was, was having my opinions flipped on that was actually really fun. We covered a lot of really like good ground that. there. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, so we're, we're getting back into the article so now. So now we're in the like cook and chef part yeah. of the article and what the fundamental differences are. The, the core distinction between cooks and chefs and how that is like the core heuristic here for improving your thinking. And I guess we should point out too that some people use cook and chef interchangeably. And oh, right. That's true. But the, the distinction here is that the way, okay, so what he says is the difference between the way Elon thinks and the way most people think is kind of like the difference between a cook and a chef. The words cook and chef seem kind of like synonyms, and in the real world, they're often used interchangeably. But when I say chef, I don't mean any ordinary chef. I mean the trailblazing chef, the kind of chef who invents recipes. And for our purpose, everyone else who enters a kitchen, all those who follow recipes, is a cook. Everything you eat, every part of every cuisine we know so well, was at some point in the past created for the first time. Wheat, tomatoes, salt, and milk go back a long time. But at some point, someone said, what if I take those ingredients and do this and this and this and ended up with the world's first pizza? That's the work of a chef. 
Yeah, that's a really good, really good way of thinking about it. And I think yeah. this heuristic applies obviously to people, which is the context of the article, but then also companies as well, because I I know when uh, I can share this now because I no longer uh, do any work with them. But when I was doing work with the essay lottery companies, my like first month there, because, you know, it's very easy to question things when you first start in an in industry. So like one of the things I was supposed to be looking at was like future beauty. So one of my questions was, if we operate off the assumption that people are going to live like longer and longer, let's say like at some point in time, they'll live till like 150 yeah. or something. Like, how do we want them to look at 100 and 110 oh. and 120 and 130? And like, how do we design products for that? Cool. I'm pretty sure they don't want to look what they currently look like at 100 right. for the last third of their life, like the last 50 years of their life, right? People are aesthetic creatures. Like they want to look good. Um, yeah, that got shot down so quick. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, I kind of got laughed at actually. Oh, damn. That, yeah. <laughs> Dude, there's a startup in there. There is, right? there is. Maybe an Elon Musk funded startup. That, that's that's going to be a whole cottage industry when some of this stuff starts coming out. Oh like, yeah, for sure. I mean, but it's like, if you're a big company with a lot of resources to invest long-term, that actually makes a lot of sense to start looking at now because it might not be an overnight thing to figure out how do you actually do that but yeah but it's kind of like this it's like going back to first principles so you look at okay life expectancy is increasing how far do you think that's going to increase that's sort of your first principles and then you base things off of that instead of being like we can make an incrementally better skin cream yeah exactly yeah right it's like we we're gonna have to rethink this at some point might yeah. not even be a cream if you I mean, it'll probably be genetic it's probably yeah exactly right. right so you kind of can rethink what the entire stem cells yep so yeah, but it's like, I, yeah, I love this cook and chef analogy. Yeah, the chef reasons from first principles. And for the chef, the first principles are raw edible ingredients. Those are her puzzle pieces, her building blocks. And she works her way upwards from there using her experience, her instincts, and her taste buds. Essentially, it's a perfect image of how to like form ideas from scratch, right? It's taking, you know, what's actually in the world that you have available to you. And then what can you do with that, right? And he's got this whole section here comparing the two of them is kind of long but i feel like it's worth reading so a day comes when something new needs to be figured out maybe the cook and the chef are each given the new task at work to create a better marketing strategy or maybe they're unhappy with that job and want to think of what business to start maybe they have a crush on someone and they never expected to have feelings for and they need to figure out what to do about it whatever this new situation is autopilot won't suffice this is something new, and neither the chef's nor the cook's software has done this before, which leaves only two options, create or copy. The chef says, ugh, okay, here we go, rolls up his sleeves and does what he always does in these situations. He switches on the active decision-making part of his software and starts to go to work. He looks at what data he has and seeks out what more he needs. He thinks about the current state of the world and reflects where his values and priorities lie. He gathers together those relevant first principle ingredients and starts puzzling together a reasoning pathway. It takes some hard work, but eventually the pathway brings him to a hypothesis. He knows it's probably wrongish, and as new data emerges, he'll taste test the hypothesis and adjust it. He keeps the decision-making center on standby for the next few weeks as he makes a bunch of early adjustments to the flawed hypothesis. A little more salt, a little less sugar, one prime ingredient that needs to be swapped out for another. Eventually, he's satisfied enough with how things are going to move back into autopilot mode. This new decision is now part of the automated routine. A new recipe is in the cookbook, and he'll check in on it to make adjustments every once in a while or as new pertinent data comes in, in the way he does for all parts of his software. The cook has no idea what's going on in the last paragraph. <laughs> I wonder if, actually, as you read that out loud, something sort of clicked for me. I wonder if this is how he runs so many companies, that it's like he's only the chef 
at a certain point in time for each company. He figures it out and then he's only occasionally making adjustments as new pertinent data comes in after sort of the rest quote recipe has been figured out. It's kind of like what we were talking about um, offline, not on the podcast about like businesses and like how, um, you know, business processes can be made to make a business grow easier and how you need to do that. But this is just like that on another level. Right. Well, I was thinking about that too, where it's basically like how you grow a business, right? Is that you figure out one part of the system and then you either hire or automate or outsource or whatever that. So you go figure out the next part of it. And it's kind of like, you know, if you read the E-Myth revisited or the goal, right? It's sort of like the core idea is that you can't really advance until you figured something out and move on to the next one. And like the cook is going to be the one who is just implementing an existing system over and over again. The chef is going to be the one who's designing the new systems. Right. So I guess in the E-Myth example, it would be almost like the chef is the guy who comes up with the franchise concept. Mm -hmm. And then the cook is the person who's like buying the franchise and then implementing the playbook basically which is i mean that's a that can be great business too yeah but it's not being a chef you know that's not what you're doing in that case and i think in emith he does a really good job of showing how it is just like a playbook because he's talking about how you're supposed to create it so anybody can implement it like the the, checklist yeah like what's the like what's the lowest skill necessary to operate your system right shows you how good it is but you don't need a genius basically to operate it well i think there's a balance too yeah right uh, so, you know, I do this with my business with growth machine where the people who I have working on my team, like I have designed systems for them to follow, but then a core part of their job is also improving the systems. Right. So Ooh, strange loops. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but so like, I make it really clear to them where it's like your number one job is improving the system and making it better. Your number two job is implementing it with clients. Yep. Right. And that I find like, Ooh, I'm going to steal that. Because I'm, I'm doing that right now with mine. We're basically like, because, you know, mine's a marketplace, right? But each state is like basically its own territory. So I have like a few different consultants working for me in each state. And, the you know, the end goal is to have sort of not quite a franchise system, but have like, you know, state managers, essentially, because each state is its own rules. So it's almost its own market, even right. if the states are right next to each other, like New York and New Jersey. But I'm going to steal that framework of like, their job is not just to implement, their job is to improve the system as well. Because I think it's easy to fall into the like cookiness. Well, because like what I've been doing is trying to like figure out the system in each state and then hand it off to like a cons- like someone to, and then start handing it off. Like, you know, I do it in stages. I don't fully just throw someone into the deep end. Right. But then the goal is to like, slowly they start spending more and more, you know, time running it and ultimately should be their full-time job at some point. But their job should also be to improve the system because facts on the ground might change. And if they're just blindly, you know, following the recipe, we're going to lose in the long run as things change. So, yeah. And it's like uh, going back to finite and infinite games, right? It's the difference between the machine and the garden, right? With the machine, you just like create a system and then you expect it to like run perfectly forever. But obviously it's going to break down over time and you'll keep running around putting out fires. But if you design it more garden-like, then it can improve itself and grow over time without you having to constantly like be there to tend to it. I love that. This is all coming together for me. I know. I I love how we can just like (laughs) interweave all the books. This is such a productive podcast. It is. I learn a lot every week. (laughs) (laughs) Something about talking about it too helps codify the ideas and make the connections. Yeah. Or there's like connections that you make that I didn't make or maybe sometimes maybe vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, no, never. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just, just my connections. (laughs) Yeah.
Uh, but so, so Musk calls the cook form of thinking reasoning by analogy as opposed to reasoning by first principles, which basically means that like when a cook doesn't have the info they need, they go ask their friends, they Google it, they like try to skip straight to the solution instead of looking at like the underlying data that they have and then trying to come up with a solution on their own. And this is like a really hard thing to do, yeah. right? Because I, I know that I do this where I have some problem and then I Google, right? Oh, yeah, like, you're like someone's written an article about yeah, this Yeah, someone's problem. written an article about this, right? Like, how do I? Maybe you have. <laughs> possibly me. <Yeah. laughs> and it, to be fair, I think there are areas where it does make sense and it doesn't make sense to do this, right? Like one of the things that I've kind of learned from doing research on skill development is that in the beginning, you have to be a cook. Right. Like, I think a lot of people yeah. want to skip straight to being a chef. Yeah. And like, that's silly. That's such a good point. You you can't be a chef until you've internalized so many recipes that you have the intuition necessary to be chefy. So like, you shouldn't go out and try to make up new rules for starting a company. Right. Yeah. Start three or four of them. Right. Get that down. And then you can play around with it. Yeah. Right. Like you have to learn your scales before you can do improv and jazz. You can't skip straight to improv. Yeah. And, you know, in, in this case, it's fine to like look things up on the internet and stuff. The only problem is if you always keep looking things up. So in or you never ask the whys too, because I think after you look up things enough, then you're like, hmm, I wonder like even I don't know if you experienced this too, but even when I'm beginning a new skill, you still have those things in the back of your mind. Like, oh, I wonder why that is. Yeah. Even though like you might not have enough knowledge like and probably 95 percent of the things you're asking why about. There's a very simple answer that you just don't know just because you're a beginner. But a few things maybe you're asking why that like you're looking at it with a beginner's mind yeah. and you're seeing something that people who've been doing that for 40 years just are not seeing because to them is just the way things are always done exactly Your nobody's been challenging it and that's the other distinction is like it's not like a conscious thing of thinking like oh that's just how things are always done it's like your brain almost doesn't even see it because you're just so used to doing something a certain way yeah do you even think about googling things anymore like half the time i just find myself on google like i'll think like <laughs> oh i don't know that and then i'll like mid like i'll be like on the google search result page and then be like oh shit yeah like how did i think about googling it right like i just didn't know so i just my fingers did the work yeah it's like an instinct yeah exactly it's that (laughs) reflex yeah no i mean it's a good point because it's like there's a balance between asking questions and then just like doing it for a while and then you can ask questions later but that that asking questions and trying to develop that intuition is such an important jump totally because uh there's a great book on this called um Well, okay. so the book is called Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, like refactoring your wetware. But they talk about this research by the Dreyfus brothers on like the five stages of expertise. It's like beginner or there's novice, advanced beginner, competent, proficient, expert. And something like 80 percent of people never make it past advanced beginner because you can only get past advanced beginner if you start operating without recipes. And start using little bits of intuition, right? And you might mess up. And that's yeah, fine. And, th- and that's <laughs> a whole part of it, yeah. right? Is that like, and that's a big part of the shift that they talk about is that you have to disassociate your identity with your success in the skill. Because if you're emotionally attached to the outcome of every experiment, you'll never like take the risks you need to learn. And so this whole process we just talked about with the chef, like combining ingredients and stuff, you'll never do it because you're afraid of a meal tasting bad. And I'm sure even the guy who invented the pizza like there are probably a whole bunch of things he invented that like we don't even know about because yeah. they weren't worth eating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or they, they, yeah, he was just screwing around with it a bunch or it happened by accident, right? Yep. It's like post-it notes. Oh, yeah, right. right That's yep. always possible too. 
Yeah, and, and Tim mentions this as well. It's not like you have to be a chef all the time. Right. It's just, as he says, it's in those key moments when it's time to write a new album, those moments of truth in front of a clean canvas, a blank Word doc, an empty playbook, a new sheet of blueprint paper, a fresh whiteboard, that the chef and the cook reveal their true colors. The chef creates while the cook in some form or another copies. And the difference in outcomes is enormous. For cooks, even the most innovative kind, there's almost always a ceiling on the size of the splash they can make in the world. So true. And I always think about that when you see like, this is Uber for X or like Airbnb for X. It's like sometimes, okay, there's a distinction to be made though. Sometimes that's just the media putting a label on a company that might not be like actually what the company thinks of itself. And in that case, I don't think it's a problem. It's only a problem if the company starts thinking like they are Uber for X and then just copying the Uber playbook for whatever they're doing. Because the reality on the ground in their industry, no way it's 100% identical to transportation. There might be similarities. There's nothing wrong with those, you know, looking at those similarities, but it's never going to be identical. Or even worse, if it's like, we're like Uber, but we only do eight-person shuttles, Yeah. right? Then it's like, you're really being, you know, you're basically taking their exact business model and trying to beat them at some niche part of it. Right. And there's almost no independent thought going into it. Yeah, and as he said, it doesn't mean that a cook can't be successful at it, but they're not going to make as big of a splash. Like, for that company to think they're going to be worth what Uber's worth is not... It's just, like, not possible. Because if you're doing a derivative version of something else, it can never be bigger than it, in most cases. Like, Apple could never have been bigger than Microsoft if they hadn't expanded into the iPod and the iPhone all of that like it just never would have happened right even though yeah like yeah they were first but microsoft made his enterprise first so it had to be like it had to get into something else and then he makes this important distinction here which is that like being a chef isn't about being like elon musk it's about being yourself you know what's crazy is there's literally line in the red book by jung that's Mm -hmm. almost identical about uh jesus Oh, really? Yeah, he's talking about like he has this realization at one because it's basically like his reflections, right? So he has this realization that like the best way to be like Jesus is not to be like Jesus. It's to be like yourself. Follow your own true nature. Huh. (laughs) It's like literally that exact line except without Elon. Elon Elon is kind of like our Jesus. Yeah, Yeah, he is the... (laughs) We we speak of him in these exalted terms. He has this God-like persona. The whole point of this article is to show that he is not a God. He makes miracles happen. (laughs) Like if you, if you told me he walked on water, I'd be like, I'm sure he figured out a way to do that. Right. Like that'd be my first shoe company. His yeah. Shoe company. I, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say like, Oh, come on bullshit. I'd be like, wait, really? How? Right. I would, <laughs> so I, 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 I buy it, but and yeah, so we're, we're in this distinction of cooks and chefs and what the distinction he makes here is that we all think that we're chefs and Elon is just like the best chef. But in reality, it's more like we're all cooks, despite, you know, the uncomfortable recognition of that, whereas Elon is like a chef. a chef through and through. And there's a few reasons for that. One, we mistake like the chef's clear view of the present for a vision of the future where, you know, it's like we said at the rocket thing, right? Like he broke it down, did the math, realized they could make rockets for way cheaper and he right. started SpaceX. And then it's not like risky. It's not like he's this trail like, you know, people have this view of entrepreneurs as being like. I don't know, these swashbuckling, like, yeah. risk-taker, like, pirate type I love thing. that word. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Right, like, people think they're like, it's like, wow, you started a company, it's so risky. But it's like, it's almost like if you have one of these insights, it's almost like you'd be stupid not to. Yeah, exactly. Like, you'd be really stupid not to. It's like, wow, you had the insight and then you chose not to do it? Like, Well, I mean, when he walked through the math for SpaceX. Right? Yeah, exactly. exactly he, he would have doing. been dumb not to do anything. Like, not dumb, but it would have been a true, like, missed opportunity if you have that, if you, the math is sitting in front of you and then you're like nah 
I'm good. Well, and that's the distinction here where, and this is like the second point is that we mistake the chef's accurate understanding of risk for courage, right? And he says that when Musk put his entire fortune down on SpaceX and Tesla, he was being bold as fuck, but not courageous. Courageous isn't the right word. It was the case of a chef taking a bunch of information he had and puzzling together a plan that seemed logical. It's not that he was sure he'd succeed. In fact, he thought SpaceX in particular had a reasonable probability of failure. It's just that nowhere in his assessment did he foresee danger. Right. It's like he knew that the worst thing that would happen is that he would just go back to being, you know, not rich. And it's like, well, I was happy and fine when I wasn't rich before and I started companies and I was successful. I can probably do that again. I started another company. Yeah, exactly. Or or he he can go work for like a company while he figures out what his next company is going to be or whatever. Like work with Peter Thiel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) His risk profile is not. It's just accurately calibrated. Yes. And then the last thing is that we mistake originality for brilliant ingenuity where Yes, like Musk, he says that Musk is smart as fucking insanely ambitious, but that's not why he's beating everybody. What makes him so rad is that he's a software outlier, a chef in a world of cooks, a science geologist in a world of flood geologists, a brain software pro in a world where people don't realize brain software is a thing. That's a secret sauce, which is why the real story here isn't Musk, it's us. The real puzzle in this series isn't why Elon Musk is trying to end the era of gas cars or why he's trying to land a rocket or why he cares so much about colonizing Mars. It's why Elon Musk is so rare, right? What's the deal with us? Why don't we all more chef-like? Why are we cooks? Why do we fall into dogma and tribal ideology and all of these things? And that's what the last section of the book or the, the article <laughs> feels like a book sometimes yeah. <laughs> uh, tries to address. Is, but I think often it comes back to what we've talked about in a lot of different episodes, but evolution. Yeah. Right. I think like evolution very much, is a yeah. very strong explainer for this. He's got, he's got this whole explanation here where it's like a tribe literally could not survive if we were all chefs. Right. If everybody was like, we're going to go try new hunting methods <laughs> and They'd probably like, starve. explore over here. And explore, like there probably were people like that. Yeah. They all died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work until, you know, 20 years ago. Right. It's like your ability to be a chef is infinitely greater now than it ever was in oh, history. Oh, yeah. Right? And and that's Sovereign Individual, I think, talks Very a lot sovereign about that. And, yep. Yeah. Like a lot of books. It's yeah. weird. I mean, we're, we're at this point in history where your ability to literally just like go try a bunch of stuff in a very risk-free environment has never been anywhere near as high as it is Like, now. dude, we started a podcast. Neither of us has any... Well, you have more of a background of podcast than me. Yeah. I have a podcast listening background, maybe, <laughs> but... And like, we don't have to get like a license to start a pot. Like imagine to like start a radio station was pretty expensive. I'm imagining, I don't even know how you'd even go about doing that. Well, and you would have to get like a intern job at the radio and like work your way up and then like eventually probably raise some funding to buy like whatever license you probably need for that. And like, yeah, we rent a studio. We like how, like how much did the mics cost? I mean, the whole tech setup is probably like 500 bucks. We paid then, 400 bucks for a logo. Yeah, 400 bucks for a logo. Another like 500 to 1,000 a month in editing and like show notes stuff. Pretty low cost. And then we're, you know, we're hanging out in my living room. Yeah. Right? The cost like, of the books. But yeah, the no, books. But it's we, like, the thing is we get the books anyway. Books like, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, it's like, but basically we're not asking anyone's permission. And like the podcast, if it goes horribly wrong, like there's no cost of shutting it down either. Exactly. <laughs> and it was and, a fun experiment. Really, there's really no loss. Right. Because it's, it's like experiment. we get to hang out every Friday. Exactly. And Which talk we about. probably hang out at least once a week anyway. We live Actually, in the same I mean, city. I was saying this to someone else where it's it's almost a 
good excuse for us to hang right. out exactly because it's hard like having friends in a city and like oh yeah. i'm busy like you're busy especially like, new york's like work. a fairly flaky city yeah it's like- and if all of your friends are like working on businesses and doing all of that like that makes it even worse yeah exactly. so you kind of have to work on projects with people if you want to hang out with them. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah so it's like very low risk like literally no risk right but whereas like yeah even your point about 20 years ago like this sort of shift happening is yeah. a great one because even 50 years ago you couldn't really do as much stuff as you can do now oh, no. and like 10,000 years ago I can imagine it would be I don't know if like somebody was like oh, I'm gonna start my own little like offshoot of a tribe over here like the tribal leader would probably be like well fuck you we're gonna kill you yeah exactly <laughs> like, yeah. I think half of the US tried that once it yeah. didn't go very well yeah oh yeah uh, I forgot about forgot about that forgot little about that little detail part. yeah some people are uh, still hung up on that yeah but so there are these three epiphanies because Tim outlines there's three kinds of cooks and one kind of chef. Or, and then there's the chef. So there's three cooks. There's the proud cook, which is the person who is just fully drinking the dogma Kool-Aid and doesn't even realize it. Like they fully believe he uses the analogy of the emperor's new clothes, right? Where he says like a proud cook is somebody who literally thinks they see the emperor wearing clothes. The emperor is naked walking around, but this the proud cook is like, no, he is wearing clothes and I like I see them. I believe that I see them. There's so many examples where you could think of that. Anyway, yeah. we'll skip the examples because uh, I think people get it. We're getting low on time. Yeah. yeah. The insecure cook is the next phase where they think they see that the king isn't wearing clothes, but they're like, they're not totally sure. They're yep. like, they're like, oh, like, like wait, am I the only one? See- like, am I the only one? Yeah. Like, oh God, like I'm not good enough. It's a very lonely right? phase though. Yeah, it's exactly. A very lonely phase. It's like nobody else sees this, right? Or like maybe I'm full of shit or right? right. like, I don't know. Or like, there's no way I would be the one who would see this and no one else sees it. Like, yeah. what do I know? What do I know? Exactly. And when you go from proud cook to insecure cook, it's when you have the first epiphany, which is that you don't know shit or like you don't know anything. And once you have that realization, you're in that really insecure phase of like oh god like i don't know anything i'm gonna fail at all this whatever the next phase when you go through in epiphany two you become a self-loathing cook where it's like i know the king isn't wearing clothing or i know the emperor isn't wearing clothing i know everybody else knows he isn't wearing clothing (laughs) but i'm not gonna say anything right which is a weird phase but it's like you know that you don't know shit you know that nobody else knows shit but you don't do anything about it right and tim actually argues that that's where most people are oh is that they truly do realize they realize that like yeah i don't know what i'm doing but everybody else doesn't seem to know what they're doing either right like i don't know if you had this experience uh and this sounds like I don't know, a little, uh, I guess, like pretentious or whatever. But I I know other people have had this experience too, right? When I got into Carnegie, right, for college, I was like, oh my God, everybody's going to be so smart and like, it's going to be so exciting. And like, there's going to be all these really like entrepreneurial driven, like just intelligent people. And I got there and I was like, wow, a lot of people here are really dumb, right? (laughs) Or... It was like uh, going to work at a company, right? And being like, oh, this like person that I really look up to is going to like know all this stuff and be so organized and have, like amazing systems for all of it. And then you get there and you're like, wow, they're just like throwing shots in the dark too. And like, that's what I thought about check, San Francisco. Right? I had that exact re- yeah. reaction when I moved out there because I moved there because I was like, oh, wow, everyone's going to be so innovative. Like it's going to be all these really cool ideas. But then you go there and it's like, Everyone's just drinking their own Kool-Aid. Yeah. And like, wow, everyone's kind of full of shit. It's the same thing. It's the exact, but yeah, it's the same thing in any environment you go to. The emperor is not wearing any clothes. Exactly. That's exactly. But then the point Tim makes is that most people just kind of stop there. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, wow, like everyone's kind of full of shit. And that's just the way it is. But they don't like take advantage of it. Right. And Taleb actually has a line about this where he's like, if you recognize that somebody's full of shit, the solution isn't to like ignore them. It's to like make fun of them and like (laughs) toy with them. Which if you haven't seen his his Twitter feed, like, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got to go. go on his Twitter to fully understand. Uh, the and of course, that was our Taleb reference for the episode because that, 
Has, it has, is basically the Taleb podcast. Yeah. That's <laughs> Featuring Nassim Nicholas. He might as well be a guest. Because like, yeah. he's referenced in everything. We just like splice in audio clips of him. <laughs> uh, but then the final stage is the chef. And the chef, Tim says, is the kid in the Emperor's New Clothes story. The kid who walks up and is like, yo, the Emperor's naked. Right? And everybody else is like, uh... <laughs> yeah he is actually <laughs> like thank you for saying something and it's like, like the kid or elon musk too because i feel yeah, like exactly I, he also helped expose like how like bloated government contracting is yeah and you're starting to see that reverberate a little more beyond just spacex but he's kind of the first one to really call out like mm-hmm. na- like the prices nasa is getting are a complete are bullshit absurd. Yeah. yeah and he did this in a much smaller way with uh tunneling and tunnel oh, construction yeah right yeah it's not they, even they smaller to, it's the like, same exact idea yeah they had to build a new tunnel machine because the one that they've been using for years is just like so shitty and slow and it's the one we've always been using exactly it is yeah there's no incentive to improve it and so he's like no we'll just build a better tunneling machine yeah (laughs) uh but yeah so the chef is the kid in the story the chef is the self-loathing cook except without the irrational fear the chef goes through the same inner thought process as self-loathing cooks but when it's time to walk the walk the chef stands up and yells out the truth and going back to what we talked about in the beginning, this is kind of why it can be helpful to not be really like held back by social concerns. You know, if you're not worried about what people are going to think about you, you're going to be more willing to go do what you want, say how you're feeling, say what you're thinking. Yep. I mean, honestly, like I felt like this has been a benefit of my blog in that since I've written articles about like sex and LSD and just yeah. like ridiculous <laughs> yeah, shit. Exactly. There's like, nothing you can't talk about. Yeah, it's like nothing I can't talk about. And that's sort of like a helpful heuristic for me of like not being embarrassed to talk about stuff. Oh, right? yeah. That's it's like, point. it's sort of like a way to force yourself to break down that like ego. And I'm still, I still definitely don't do it as much as I could. And I still have that like irrational fear of judgment, but it's helpful. Even you, then everybody like, has it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing that's like, we all have it. Yeah. But there are exercises you can do to help get through some of it. It's funny because it basically is the way to get through it is push against the barrier. Yeah, like you just have to do stuff. An infinite, turn it more into an infinite game. It is. Yeah, it is. yeah you have to expand the horizon, <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow, all these things are so connected. They are. It's so fun too. It's like, that we can tie the ideas from the different books together. Yeah. And it's a good way to get everyone to go listen to the past episodes. Yes. We swear it's not just a marketing ploy. Like yeah, there are, there see, are how do we how do we tie in Seneca and <laughs> yeah, Robert Green? Those are the two we've missed uh, so far. <laughs> uh, although Robert Green talks about reality too and understanding reality. That's true. That's actually a core part of developing mastery yeah. is getting an accurate lay of the field. Right? <laughs> we swear we're not doing this on purpose. <laughs> well, I think it's just easy because it's like we have to understand the books so deeply and then That's we understand them even more yeah. after talking about them. Them. And so the examples, like they just pop to mind yeah. as we're going. Right? I mean, even from uh, talking about like um, how he's saying like the kid, it's the, the self-loathing cook without irrational fear. It's kind of actually what you see with um, Ray Dalio's firm. I haven't read Principles yet. It's uh, I mean, I've read the old PDF that was out there, but I haven't read the actual book yet. I will be for an upcoming episode. But stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. But from what I understand and listening to him on Tim Ferriss's podcast as well, like they have this very much almost like extreme honesty kind of policy at their company, which when I first heard it, I was like, oh, that might be rough. But if you think about it, it would actually be great if everyone in your company could just say things like they are. 
because that means you're going to keep improving because you have a good sense of what's going on on the ground and everybody has a good sense of what's going on on the ground. So you can actually improve it. And the way they do it is cool too, because they recognize that humans won't do it naturally. Right. And so they develop tools to help with it. Super cool. And then they have like a three month onboarding process. And I think it's something like 50% of people get fired in those first three months because they can't hang with the, The you know, honesty, right? Like very objective analysis, which, you know, like it makes sense. It very much goes against our natural instincts, but it's also necessary to run a good company. Well, it's because, okay, taking it back to evolution, right? It's like, this is probably also tied to like the fear of public speaking. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, that's another super irrational fear, which I don't know about you. I've definitely felt that as well. Even though I like talking, like I really enjoy talking to people or even groups of people. But there is, if you get on a stage, there's something about like, oh shit. Like I'm in front. It's not, it's like not even a conscious thing. It's like a visceral uh, reaction, mm-hmm. at least for, you know, I think you had an article that actually really helped me with that. I was going to say, the I actually, one. I have, yeah, right? I have like the two lion. mental, I love that one. That actually yeah. helped me a lot. I've got two mental tricks that will like cure all public speaking anxiety. Uh, the first one is that the audience wants to hear a good speech and they're, they're like excited to listen to it. And then the second one is, yeah, if you Google like killing the lion, turning anxiety into excitement. That's a great article. I use that Thank one. You. Yeah. That's yours. Yeah. That, that was something I realized in college too is that the physiological response to anxiety is the same as it is to excitement where your body does the same thing whether you're about to like run away or fight and if you psychologically change how you're approaching the situation from like oh my god this is scary gotta run away to this is like exciting i'm gonna like fight this yep you turn it into an adrenaline rush yeah it turns into an adrenaline rush of like excitement right and enthusiasm and that's really powerful it makes you speaking it makes you speak way better yeah Yeah. so the first time i tried that uh i'll try not to make it too much of a tangent i was at this uh conference in houston last march or march March 2017. So not, I guess not that long ago. And yeah, I was like in front of a group. It was like, I was probably like 20 years younger than everybody in the room. (laughs) And I was like having that feeling, right. Of like, oh shit. Like, why am I even up here? Like, why they invite me? Like what is going on? So I didn't, the first one would have helped thinking about that. Like people are actually there to listen to you. That would have helped, but I didn't, I guess I hadn't read that article yet. Yeah. I don't have Um, an article on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would have helped. Maybe you should write one. Maybe. But uh, the Slay the Lion thing really helped because as I got up there, I got consciously thinking about that. Or maybe it was April. Whenever you wrote the article, it was like really soon after you had written the article. And uh, yeah, and I got really excited. And it was like the most, probably the best speech I've ever given, actually. Nice. Dude, that's so, like, here. I was just very enthusiastic. And yeah. I kept getting that feedback. They were like, oh, you had so much energy up there. And I was like, yeah, it worked. Yeah. It worked. <laughs> um, uh, I've totally forgot what I was going to say before, though. Well, we're talking about the chef like doesn't give into irrational fear kind of related to that. They can turn it into excitement because there, there is this idea here of misplaced fear yeah. where we're programmed yeah. to take fear really seriously, uh, oh, but we're not yeah, afraid we're of rational things anymore. Yep. Well, right? cause it's like back in the day, if you were like not the tribal leader and you had to get up and say something, there, you saying the wrong Risky. thing might yeah. get you in big trouble. Might get oh, you yeah. banished, might get you killed, like whatever. But now it's like, I mean, you're probably not going to get killed for what you say on the speech. Exactly. <laughs> no, speech one, no one's going to care about, corporate innovation like, yeah probably not no one's gonna kill you for that well and t- <laughs> tim mentions that here where he says like it, all of our fears are really misplaced we're more afraid of public speaking than texting on the highway more afraid of approaching an attractive stranger in a bar than marrying the wrong person yeah more afraid of not being able to afford the same lifestyle as our friends than spending 50 years in a meaningless career all because embarrassment rejection and not fitting in really sucked for hunters and gatherers Right. That's like a huge zero to one realization Yeah, is that all of your fears are based off these like irrational tribal ancient like systems yep. and that you have to devise systems to like 
get around them, right? You have to like, to like make figure out mental hacks that. to, yeah, not let them influence you. And it's hard. It's really, it's really hard. hard. It's really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody It's does like way easier thing. to talk about than to oh, actually yeah. do. It's very easy to like <laughs> sit in a living room and say, yeah, you got to face your fears. Yeah. You got to you got to go out and approach that attractive person. Yeah, you got to exactly. give a good public speech. But right? it's like when you're actually about to go do any of those things and you get oh, that yeah. feeling in the pit of your stomach, it's like, like nope, no, nope. I don't want to. <laughs> but then no, but thinking about this does really help though. Yeah. When you realize like, oh, this is just my like ancient brain telling me this. The hard part is you have to get used to thinking about it in that moment. Exactly. Yeah. Because so it's like, we all have two personalities. We have our hot and our cold self. And you know, like just our, two, just two personalities. Well, okay. I'm just kidding. Artificial dichotomy. <laughs> play, play along here. There's like lukewarm in the middle. Uh, but like you know, <laughs> hot is like the emotionally heightened, you know, fight or flight or freeze, you know, situation where you're like really adrenaline pumping, and nobody's like rational or nice or like thinking straight in that situation. And when we're like cold, then we can have like a reasonable discussion with somebody we disagree with, or we can know that we should overcome these fears. But then when you're in the hot situation, it's like, no, fuck you. Or, ah, oh, this is really scary. Or like whatever. And yeah, it's really hard to turn back on the rational mind in those situations. I mean, even in emergency, they talk about that. Yeah. Right. We're like talking about when you're just training, you're kind of like in a cool head, but when uh, you're in a heightened stress situation, you a lot of times are not even conscious of the activities that you're doing. You'll default to the level of your training. Yeah. Yeah. You won't rise to the occasion. Right. So that's the first misconception. The second one is misplaced identity. So this is basically that people get too tied up in their identity. They get trapped in their own history. So narrative you, fallacy. Yeah. Narrative fallacy, uh, sunk cost, right? It's like, no, I'm a business student. Therefore, I won't pursue photography right, right? it's like or i can't program silly. because yeah, it's right. like, oh i see this so much with like uh technical versus business okay people were like on both sides we're like there's people on the technical side who will be like oh i don't know that business stuff right um, yeah i worked a lot with people in labs when i was doing a lot more consulting and you'd always hear they'd be like well you're the business guy so you know more about that and i'm like okay but there's like no reason you have to gloss over these details because like i guarantee you what you're doing in the lab is way more complicated than yeah. the business side and you're fully capable of understanding it you're just choosing not to because you're not identifying like you don't think that's part of your you think role. It's, yeah you don't think it's in your identity and you see that with business people too they're like oh well i don't understand this technical stuff because it's it's above it's like yeah okay you're not gonna be able to go program like a super complicated thing on day one but you can generally get the concepts of what is happening and it's not that hard if you're like moderately motivated to figure it out yeah you're not like, gonna like program a new ai but no, you can but you generally can understand, understand what version is stack. yeah you, exactly. can under, you know it's not like that like it is complicated and as you go into the nuances sure it's more and more complicated but to understand it at a high level like you don't have to like freak out every time you hear the word recursion. Like right, right. <laughs> you don't have to like run the other way. <laughs> but but even on a higher level, right? This misplaced identity can affect what you allow into your want pool and your reality yes. box, yep. right? Yep. Where you will pretend you don't have certain desires because they don't fit with your preconceived notions of yourself. Yep. Or you will pretend that reality isn't a certain way because of your own or somebody else's view of reality that's shaped you, right? Like going back to the Great Depression influence, right? You might think the world is a lot riskier than it is when, you know, it's not. Or the example Tim gives is travel, right? Where a lot of people think like, oh, like, you know, other countries are dangerous, right? Like you got to be careful, right? Maybe do. It's like, first off, you know, the U.S. is incredibly yeah, dangerous. Exactly. <laughs> Second, you know, there's obviously a massive selection bias in the stories you hear about these other countries, right? Nobody hears about like 
Nice, France, unless a bunch of people get killed there, right? Right. right. And so obviously you're going to think like, oh no, Nice is dangerous. Don't go there. But like, no, it's not really any more dangerous than anywhere else. Right. It's just like you have that one. You heard of that one. You heard that one thing, and that affected your reality box. You have to get like an accurate lay of the land, yeah. right? I uh, I was going to India in high school. Mm-hmm for like a couple weeks or something. And I had a tennis coach who I told that to. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna be here for the next two weeks because I'm going to India. And then he was like, don't get shot. And he was like, so worried for me. And I was like, what? Like, what do you mean? And he's like, don't they have like a lot of violence over there? And in my head, I'm like, we got a lot of violence yeah. over here. I think a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> but, so if you tell somebody you're going to Chicago, they're not yeah. like, oh my God, yeah, be, be safe. safe. Like, I mean, maybe they are if they have their risks well calibrated. Right? Yeah, maybe. Right. But it was like, like when, when I went. Like you basically leave the US unless you're going to like certain countries, like maybe like Iraq or like. Police actually, weirdly enough. Oh, really? Yeah. I, when I it's went more to, dangerous. Yeah, they have the highest homicide rate per capita in the country, I think. Yeah. Oh, wow. When I went to live in uh, Argentina for a while, my mom was like very worried, right? Like, oh, safety. And so I I, like looked up the like murder statistics and stuff and sent it to her. And we had taken a family trip to Belize. And I was like, oh, well, if you're so worried about my safety, right? Like, why'd you take me to the highest homicide rate per capita country (laughs) in the world? Right. It's like, it's hard to calibrate that stuff from the outside. You just hear like, oh, it's dangerous other parts of the world, right? Yeah, I know. Because it's like, you just see what, what, Whatever is on the news, which to tie in another episode. Exactly, yeah. Abusing <laughs> ourselves to death. Dude, we, I think we've hit like all of them now. Except so. for Seneca. Except for Seneca. Weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we've talked about it a couple times now. So go listen to Seneca too. Yeah, <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> okay, we can play this game like every episode. See if we yeah, can incorporate we can all the other episodes. But it might get hard as we... <laughs> have, like, Re- recurring listeners might get tired of it. Yeah. Too. <laughs> but the, the final part we should touch on is uh, what Tim says at the end, which is that the ultimate realization is that you're playing Grand Theft Life. So, you know, Grand Theft Auto is a video game where you can, like, just do whatever you want. You can, like, kill people, steal cars and stuff. And obviously, you shouldn't do those things. But if somebody handed you... You can a, do it in the game. You can do it in the game. Yeah, yeah. But, like, you shouldn't do them in real life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody <laughs> handed you a perfect simulation of your life right now, and it's all fake with no actual consequences, with the only rules being that you can't break the law or harm anyone, and you still have to make sure to support your family, you and your family's basic needs, like, what would you do? And odds are you would take a lot more risks and like go after more exciting things if you were handed your life in a simulation like you would think about it differently you wouldn't attach all of this past history to it you wouldn't like have all these fixed narratives about what you should or shouldn't do you would really say like what's the biggest opportunity i can go after and you would pursue it fairly reasonably what's the downside what's the downside yeah it's like you'll have a much more accurately calibrated sense of risk and, and you probably won't fall into as many of like the hunter gatherer traps yeah. as well. So it's funny that there's this dichotomy, right? It's like on one hand, it's great to think about the hunter gatherer thing for nutrition and for like <laughs> yeah. for some things that we do in life. Well, it's There's useful ways, it's for like, the systems that haven't changed. Yes. Yep. Nutrition has not changed. Right. Or like same body, you should eat the same things. Right. But social structure and work and like society, completely yeah. different. Right. right. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's also like gone in the reverse direction where it's way easier to maintain oh, yeah, that's a the hunter-gatherer point. social stuff and way harder to maintain the hunter-gatherer nutrition. Yeah. But you have to do the opposite. <laughs> you have to like override your impulses in both directions. Oh, man. Like, yep. Yeah, it's not easy. So what we're saying is life is not easy. Yeah, life isn't easy. That's what keeps it fun. That's what keeps it fun. Yeah. If it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Maybe. Maybe that's like using cheat codes. Yeah. We'll find out with universal basic income. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, cool. we should probably. This might be the longest episode. I think it is. Uh, and it's ex- one of the shortest 
Yeah, it's like one of the shortest pieces. pieces. Of, yeah. I think there's just so many jumping off points here. And it's not a book, but it's so information dense. Yeah. And it's, he could have turned this into a book if he really wanted to book deal with it. Oh, he did. Okay. Well, he self-published it. He okay. did it with a uh, book in a box. Oh, smart. So nice. yeah, he yeah. just, he sent them all the blog posts and they packaged it into a book. So you can get it on Amazon, like the Elon Musk series by Wait But Why. And it's all in there. It's a great series. You should read the whole thing. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link Might to all cool of them. be cool to have on a bookshelf too. Yeah. I don't know if he has a hardcover version or if he has a physical as well or just a Kindle. Okay. He might have a physical one. I mean, it's so easy. That, right? Yeah, they, yeah. They do that too. So small plug for our friend Zach Obron here. Yeah. And if they haven't, you got one potential buyer here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would put that on my bookshelf just to keep a reminder. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a good reminder of cooking the chef yeah. thing. Yeah. So cool. Uh, on that note, go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com for the show notes. There's a lot for this one. Yeah. There's a lot of different things I mean, we talked about. We've got 20 pages of notes. Oh, so. yeah. Sign up for the email list so that you can get the actual outline for oh, this. Yeah. So there's the show notes that have all the links and everything we mentioned. Yep. Those are free. They're on the site. You don't even need to sign up for the email for that. Up. Although you should. <laughs> you should. It'll make your hosts very happy. <laughs> yeah. And if you do, then you'll also get our prep notes so you can see all of our like highlights and things. You'll get all the past prep notes. So in case you're curious about that, find out about upcoming episodes, book giveaways. Yep. And then potentially some cool in-person things as well that we may do if you're in New York. That's true. We could do like yeah. an in-person. Or other cities that we visit. Or, yeah. yeah. Or we've been thinking about doing some like other kinds of episodes too, yeah. where we like pick a few articles each and talk about them. So we might solicit ideas for that. Go on. You'll uh, be part of the Cool Kids Club. Yeah, exactly. And you'll be <laughs> the first to find out when uh, you can give us money, which <laughs> I would be excited about. I mean, like. I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm excited. Well, about I assume everybody else is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to works, right? <laughs> <laughs> no but seriously guys uh tell your friends go check out the show notes leave a review leave that a review really helps yeah we finally have some stars showing us true our- we have stars <laughs> five yeah. stars so far so don't ruin it yeah it's been pretty much up and to the right since we launched so uh thank you all for supporting us this far we've yeah, been enjoying doing it and and yeah definitely tweet at us too with questions like we love that or like if you come across anything interesting that we skipped over we might not have been aware of that's yeah. related like we're just two nerds doing the podcast so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah shoot, shoot us your thoughts and feedback and everything yeah. so that's i'm at nat elias and n-a-t-e-l-i-a-s-o-n and i'm at the rail neil s n-e-i-l N-E-I-L. get that right with an s at the end yeah, and that's at the end. I think they got that part. Real Neil's. Real Neil's. Yeah, the real Neil's. <laughs> All right. Oh, I had another tangent, but I'll save that for next time. Next time. Next yeah. time. We're, we're, we're well Way past. over. Yeah. That's Thank you guys teaser. for listening to this one for <laughs> two and a half hours. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks, everyone.